Hi, I'm Amanda. And I'm Kim. And this is The Department, a podcast about trends, taste, brands, and products. Thanks for joining us here at the department for episode 31. Uh, We thought this week it would be super fun to talk about some of the hipster subcultures and then those trends kind of behind them. So obviously, you know, every city has its own type of hipsters. (laughs) So, So we're kind of just staying true to what we know in our experience. But, you know, we would love it if you would email us a voice memo or call on into the hotline, uh, 717-925-7417. Um, if you have anything to add about your own personal experiences with subcultures specific to the cities or neighborhoods that you were in, or if you have something to add to the ones that we talked about today. Um, or if you have any other trends that you want to kind of pass along, you know, we would love to hear it. We've been getting some really great messages, which we will get into in a minute here. So you can join our social community at underscore the underscore department for a bunch of extra content and inside jokes. You know, we have a really great website as well, which is the department.world for all the show notes, uh, images, access to our hotline, all those things. Oh, and our and our email address. So if, if you've got a voice message that you want to send us, you know, you can just, you can just get that address there. Um, I think it's actually just info at the department dot world. Um, <laughs> we don't share. know. We don't know. I don't know. <laughs> Some, somehow people are able to go to our website and find our email address. So apparently it's pretty easy to get. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then lastly, you know, I just want to say, if you're enjoying the show, just, you know, hit the pause button for a second, you know, pop on over to Apple, uh, Apple podcasts and, um, you know, leave us a star rating and a review, which would be really amazing. Yeah, We love those. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then also, you know, make sure to follow us on any of your preferred podcast streaming services. Yeah. And so Amanda, I just wanted you to do the honor and telling everyone about the clothes horse blog. Yes, it is clotheshorse.world. And uh, while it is, you know, connected somewhat to my other podcast, Clothes Horse, it's really a hub for the community that exists around both Clothes Horse, the podcast, and the department. And we even have some department content over there, and it'll be coming over pretty regularly. I guess I guess I'm just becoming like a media mogul or something yeah, like that. I think you are. <laughs> You're building your own empire. Yeah, there you go. But it's like really unglamorous right now. Most of it happens in the kitchen mm-hmm. <laughs> um, because my studio is too cold most of the time. But when summer comes, <laughs> things are going to be a lot more upscale. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> what will you be outside? What's What makes it upscale? Uh, well, I can work in my office for one. Mm-hmm. Although I wish everybody could see uh, what's going on right now because I have a carved wooden screen behind me that is covered with a moving blanket with foam clipped to it because my office is so massive. We have to like create like a studio space in here. Mm -hmm. So I need to like do some more decor around that to make it look cooler. But uh, 
it's it's definitely a DIY situation right now. Um, but yeah, maybe I'll be doing a lot more media moguling outdoors when uh, summer comes because I've got a front porch and a back porch. You know, Amanda's podcast, Clothes Horse, is it's it's got a ton of momentum and it's just a huge following. So if you don't know about it, you know, make sure to check it out. Amanda, would you do you want to explain what it is a little bit? Someone once said, if you love clothes but hate capitalism, Clothes Horse is a great podcast for you. I would mm-hmm. say that it began as a way to talk about the way the industry works and how that affects our planet and also us as consumers and really the workers around the world. Um, Kim's, Kim was on some early episodes where we talked about the rise of e-commerce and how that works and like you know, why shipping isn't really free, how the impact of returns, all of these things. But over Mm -hmm. time, it's been really growing more and more. And we talk about all kinds of other topics that, you know, in one way or another do relate to clothing and style and buying and consumption, but are a lot more complicated than that. Like the other day, I did an episode, I mean, it was among other things that it was about. I talked a lot about the, the, illegal market for secondhand American clothing in Mexico. So we talked about all kinds of stuff. I learned all kinds of new things every day. Uh, this year, uh, I have a new thing where there's a theme every month. So March, actually, the theme of Clothes Horse is going to be consumption. We're going to be talking a lot about why we buy things, why we tend to overshop, and why we have fallen in love with fast fashion. And also, like, how we undo that, you know, and so talking a lot about personal, our personal um, experiences and how we feel about stuff and ourselves mm-hmm. that makes us shop till we drop. Um, but Close Horse, the blog, Close Horse World, yes, it's about all of those things. And it's all about the values and the kind of vibe that we serve on both Close Horse, the podcast and at the department. But I really, you know, Meg, who is our content producer, approached me I don't know, like last year, late last year, and said, have you ever thought about creating a style blog that lives in the clothes horse universe? And I was like, you know, I love that idea. I mean, Kim, when was the last time you looked at a style blog and actually felt inspired by it? I mean, it's usually just advertisements. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And we, you know, and and that was like, for me, that was the call to action that we all know now that a lot of the women's magazines of the past were just used to make us feel like we needed stuff so that we could be better right? And Mm -hmm. blogs, I do think that style blogs began with their heart in the right place, if you will. They really were about inspiring people. But over time, they just turned into advertisements, you know, listicles. And like, it's like affiliate marketing. Like, obviously, if they if they link up to affiliate marketing with these all these different brands, um, that they just make sales off of any purchase of a brand that they're talking about. So it just kind of turned into like yeah, just advertisements and ways for them to to make more money. So that it wasn't necessarily all about their taste or things that they actually personally bought or liked. It was whoever was was going to pay them enough money. Oh, for sure. For them, to talk and I'm about. sure you've dealt with this on the marketing side, working for a small brand. Mm-hmm. When I was at the aforementioned many episodes ago, small feminist brand, we actually did a lot we made a lot of progress like in terms of building our customer base in the early days using like refinery 29 and bustle and whatnot but then they reached a point where they were like well actually now we choose our editorial content based on how much money it's going to make us so like we just don't know how could you drive us that kind of affiliate who's our sponsor yeah yeah exactly and so I, I've known that this was going on for a long time but I also realized that I stopped looking at these blogs they weren't 
inspiring anymore. And then also like, no. were they inclusive? No, it was primarily thin, white, young, rich, yes, cis women. Exactly. What about everyone else? So I, you know, with Meg's help and the rest of our amazing team, we have Carrie, we have Haley, we have Katie. I'm sure more people will be joining the team over time. You know, the Close Horse blog aims to be everything that all of those style blogs never were. Uh, truly inclusive, honest, safe, welcoming. And what I think makes Close Horse really unique is that most of the content is created by members of the community. So it's like by the community, for the community, starring the community. And I just really want to redefine what style, what a good quality of life means because what what is being sold to us right now as those things is is just not true um so yeah if you should go check it out right now it's closehorse.world um you might feel inspired to contribute yourself and there is a button in the upper left hand corner of the home screen that will take you to all the links to get in touch with us to contribute your voice to our conversation Oh, I love that, Amanda. That is so exciting and refreshing. Having like a new point of view that isn't just complete commercialized garbage and and is not a bunch of fast fashion. Yeah, yeah. So- I mean, both Amanda and I worked in fast uh. fashion and both of us felt like garbage working in fast fashion. I mean, I had multiple fast fashion jobs where I just felt like I was destroying the planet with every PO I was placing. Yeah, yeah. And like, no one cares, you know? And I mean, mm-hmm. you and I have talked about this, you know, a lot of the marketing and external facing branding of these fast fashion brands, you look at it and you're like, yeah, this is pretty exclusive and like, I don't know, just not, not inspiring. That's how it is to work behind the scenes there too, you know? Um, so yeah. I, I am really excited. I feel like my life is filled with incredible, talented, creative, and very stylish people. I want them all to be on this blog. You know, one of the best things that has come out of starting Close Horse last summer is that there's a whole community that has kind of arisen out of this. And all of the people I've met along the way are just so amazing, so talented. A lot of like new small businesses. Yeah. Like actually build a community around all these people that probably didn't exactly. be, like kind of felt like maybe they were alone. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, help them out like with our business expertise, introduce them to customers. And also just really, you know, like this is something that always comes up in like your corporate performance review, but it's like, do you lead by example? I want Close Horse to lead everyone else by example by saying, mm-hmm. You can not buy a ton of clothes. You can wear secondhand. You can make your own stuff. You can upcycle. You can care about the planet and politics and doing the best for people and show everyone else that that is something that you can do and that is beautiful, you know? So that's Mm -hmm. what we're doing. You know, Amanda and I were actually just talking about potentially doing a crossover <laughs> podcast where I come over from the department and and, and, and work on the, the Clothes Horse um, podcast for some buying content. So if there's any questions you guys have about um, buying, planning, assortments, um, anything like that, that or even reporting and like understanding how mm-hmm, what a buyer mm-hmm. does and 
are able to like uh, leverage a bunch of um, data and tools to uh, improve business and actually look at it, you know, let us know because I, you know, we, we would love to understand what questions you guys have, and we can we can make some podcasts around it. Totally, totally, and I think also it's a really great way for people who are customers to understand mm-hmm. how the things that are being sold to them that are being marketed to them are very strategically created. Mm -hmm. And if we change the way we shop, then buyers and companies will have to change the way they sell us things. So it's all like, it's all important to understand. (laughs) Awesome. Well, we have some phone messages as always, although actually both of these were uh, voice memos, which are nice because I just like drop them right into the file here. And our first one today is actually from someone who, if you do listen to Close Horse, you know her very well. It's Danny of Picnic Wear. And it also includes this includes a special cameo from her husband, Jason, who worked with me back in the day at Urban Outfitters. Really? Yeah, yeah, in Philly. But yeah, I mean, I've known him for a long time. So let's listen to that message. Hi, Kim and Amanda. So I wanted to send you this message because I've obviously been digging the shit out of your 2000s um, episodes and especially the hipster ones. Not going to lie. They definitely strike a chord with me. Um, And I think I'm on like episode three now. And all of a sudden it hit me that I had found a photo this past year of uh, a notebook and myself and one of my best friends joy this was like around the beginning of our friendship circa 2007 um so kind of later in the decade um we went to a show together at mccarran park pool in williamsburg we went to see feist no wait we might have seen uh what is that band also Canadian. Wait, I can't remember. But anyways, or maybe it was Feist. Okay, regardless. So as you can imagine, it was a gathering of all the hippest hipsters. And um, my friend Joy and I decided to do a hipster scavenger hunt. And so I have a photo of the hipster scavenger hunt um the list of what we were looking for and this just like really delighted us um okay so and i'll send you the photo of course number one boy in deep v-neck number two person in large optical frames no lenses number three scene dana so like a bandana worn around the neck so like a scene kid wearing a bandana we called it a scene dana um four most limited edition dunks which was like totally her domain i would have no idea uh number five macaroni aka boy with feather in hat which definitely speaks to your uh, ye old hipster Number six, girl with chest piece. So a large chest piece tattoo. Uh, Number seven, boy in unnecessary toque. Um, So our Canadianism is showing there. Uh, So that's a beanie for all y'all Yankees. 
um, something Canadian, which is why I feel like it was either Feist or uh, what is that band called that has like Feist in it and Emily Haynes of Metric? Brooklyn Social Scene. Thank you, Jason. Um, <laughs> Man Purse was number nine. Number 10, obnoxiously bright colored skinny jeans. Number 11, this is where it starts to get cut off because it was like a very artfully uh, angled photo. Emo headband is definitely on there. I can't see any more, but... Um, yeah, I thought you'd enjoy that. I'll send you pictures of this photo and also pictures of what we were wearing that day because, ironically, obviously, we were hipsters as well. Um, so, yeah, I thought you'd enjoy that. Love y'all. Love what you're doing. TTYL. I realized I said Brooklyn social scene instead of broken. Broken social scene? Wow, this all sounds so weird to me. Wow, I feel old. <laughs> I am like dying. I am dying over here. Uh, it's her. I I truly, truly wish that I knew her <laughs> during this time period and had joined this situation. I lived right next to McCarran Park <laughs> and Mc McCarran Pool. You uh -huh, know, like, <laughs> uh -huh. you could have gone to see Brooklyn Social Scene. Oh, Brooklyn, Brooklyn Social Scene. <laughs> And I'm like, it's, you know, she, you know, she's like, I'm so embarrassed. I'm like, I'm like, actually, it's basically the same thing. It really doesn't matter. Yeah, it matter. doesn't matter. And like, that name is, a, that's a dumb band name. You know, don't make mm -hmm. it so complicated, okay? Uh, there's a reason yeah. why she thought of Feist first, because that's a catchy one. Um, mm -hmm. Anyway, I was dying the whole message because i was like these are the tropes these are all the they tropes are. i mean i they are and it was done back in what 2007 it's perfect yeah yeah oh so so good thing macaroni scene <laughs> <laughs> dana oh my god so i know good. i know i mean when she started with the deep v like the deep v, you know what i'm talking <laughs> about and those the those like super deep v shirts were always made of just like mm -hmm. a slightly sheer fabric do you know what uh -huh. i mean oh God. well they were originally made for women that men just started wearing so there's a reason why it was made of a sheer fabric <laughs> <laughs> it was meant to be sexy i know that's the weird part of it all <laughs> and then and the, but the guys were so skinny that they just, they just fit into all their girlfriends' clothes, yeah. and they always just wore their girlfriends' clothes. So it's oh. <laughs> it just kind of overlaps. I remember uh, uh, you remember Baxter. You guys all remember Baxter, right? I still get messages yeah. about how much they love Baxter. Uh, man, it would be really great if we could get Baxter on the show. Actually, anyway, oh, yeah. uh, I remember <laughs> we were living together, doing our laundry, and I was like, you know, just trying to make like some small talk while I was folding clothes, and I pulled out a pair of his jeans, and I'm like, oh. Miss 60. I didn't know Miss 60 make men's yes. clothes. And he was like, they're my sister. She gave them to me. <laughs> it was like uh -huh. so awkward. <laughs> he didn't steal them? Uh, no, I guess not. <laughs> uh, <that laughs> I did I did ask I asked Danny if she had actually found every everyone everything on her list. Um <laughs> she said that she forgot to actually play. Yeah. <laughs> play the game. They just were super delighted in making it. <laughs> I mean, it. <laughs> that's the best part, right? It always is. Yeah, do it you always is. Oh my it. god. I'm like dying because I can like 
I can I can pretty safely say that almost any show I went to in that era, I could have found all of those things within five minutes. Like just absolutely, oh, da, just especially memories. in Williamsburg. Oh yeah, you just walk down Bedford, yeah, <sighs> and you'll see all of it. So we do have the photo. Plus, there's a bunch of photos that they sent of themselves at the the show, and so they have some sort of T-shirt. I don't know what the T-shirt is that they're really proud of and they hold it up. But, um, and then they have a, a picture of the, um, the scavenger hunt. And I'm going to put that up on our Instagram. So you guys can all, all it's see so it. Good. It's, it's so really good. Thank you so much, Danny. Oh, I was like cry laughing. Right. I've heard this message like four times now. And I <laughs> cry too. laugh every single time. Mm-hmm. Uh, it just really captured the, uh, Je ne sais quoi of that era. <laughs> and the irony that they were also hipsters. Oh, so it's just I hipsters. know. God, the irony, guys. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay. Uh, so we have another message. Oh, man, I got to tell you, these hipster messages are just such uh-huh. a delight. I mean, I, I'm like, okay, let's just make the department a podcast about hipsters. Because <laughs> it's just, <laughs> just I know, it's just like so funny. Anyway, um, this one comes from Kristen. Let's take a listen. Hey, department ladies, this is Kristen calling from Los Angeles. And just right off the bat, I want to tell you how much I love your podcast. I tell literally everyone to listen to it because it is, there's just nothing like it out there. And I just really appreciate your rigor and just like how how deep you dive into all of these topics and, you know, sort of give give trends, which, you know, are so like dismissed by people that don't work in brands, branding, um, you know, the kind of attention and, and depth of thought that they deserve. Um, so I, here's a <laughs> raising a four loco to you. Um, I've had so many thoughts, uh, as I've been listening through your, your two thousands series And uh, here are just a couple that I'd love to hear you guys talk about. The first one is is sort of from an earlier part of the series, like pre-hipster, when you were talking about um, the kind of raunch culture. uh, And I've been noticing this trend, because obviously I've been uh, scrolling my eyeballs out on TikTok uh, throughout the pandemic, but Gen Z, there's this there's this bimbofication trend where essentially like they're basically dressing like that 2000s raunch culture set, like hyper hyper femme, um, and and they have this kind of uh, and like very revealing, and they have this sort of affect of like you know uh, Marilyn Monroe baby voice, but they're talking about like Marxism and uh, uh, you know just sort of, I guess, radical gender politics. Are they radical? I don't know. But I thought it was really curious because obviously Gen Z is picking up on all these 2000s trends, but it's interesting to see them being reframed in this particular way. So I'd love to hear you guys talk about bibbification. Um, another thing that I was that just I just listened to uh, last week's episode and a caller brought up kind of thinness in the hipster movement, which is like so true. Uh, as a phenomenon, but it also made me think of Rachel Zoe and um, just how she was kind of the architect of like style, <laughs> uh, you know, high fashion, mainstream, like celebrity style uh, during that time. And just how essentially you would see her little stable of girlies like <laughs> wasting away um, in their giant boho 
caftans and big uh, brass bangles and things. Um, so I'd love to hear you guys talk about Rachel Zoe too. And then lastly, I and from last week's uh, episode two, just sort of bringing up this idea of gentrification, which is just you know always going to happen in in urban places. But I wonder how much the shape of of gentrification has been set or or directed by this like hipster this this simultaneous hipster like fetishization of you know discovering these um you know unex quote unquote unexplored places which is like very coded in a racial and class way and how much just the pattern of of the certain kinds of places that open up when gentrification gets going are relics of hipsterdom um or if they're, you know, just sort of obviously when the when when places start to gentrify, you'll get a nice coffee shop and, and a nice bar and a restaurant. But I live in Highland Park in Los Angeles and I've lived here for like eight years. So I am a gentrifier. But uh, there the way that it has changed, like the, I live off this main drag. And when I tell you that there are four record stores that have opened and and at least two of them are there's a there's a there's as many barber shops one is a combination barber shop and record store one is a combination barber shop and like speakeasy and i just kind of wonder like with the way that you know hipsters basically um owned expressing yourself through your consumer choices like do you think that Gen Z is going to be gentrifying the same way that millennials do hit that Gen X did that. Is this just the way gentrification generally works or is this kind of a, a hipster mold? Anyway, I've gone on too long, but adore you. Love you. Keep up the good work. Um, man, so much to talk about there. Uh, we'll talk about Rachel Zoe in the future. I definitely think Rachel Zoe warrants an entire conversation. Uh, because yeah. even at Urban for a while there, we were like, should we be like paying attention to Rachel Zoe? So just, just saying that. Uh, I mean, I, I did mention this to Kristen. I was like, every time I think of Rachel Zoe, I think of like how bad her breath must have smelled. <laughs> and- <laughs> Why? <laughs> because, you know, when usually when you have an, an eating disorder, especially, you know, like to that extent, like your breath is so bad because your body is just like, it, it, it's, yeah, your body it's is not, like, not being fed unhappy. Properly. Yeah. Yeah. And like, and you know, I, I definitely, you know, obviously nothing against anyone that has an eating disorder at all. And I knew, but I knew a lot of like models and um, musicians and, and, you know, in New York um, that had, that had anorexia and their breath was so bad like painfully bad and i just i just thought about every time i saw rachel's all i just could i i didn't even see the the boho look i just saw bad breath i mean i just her extreme thinness i i oh can't even look painful. at it painful yeah yeah it was just it just like she was just like a skeleton <sighs> and it and and of course she's got she's she's being featured in everything I know. you know like 
that's so, and of course then she's dressing everyone and just you can only imagine what she's what she might be saying. I and, know, I know. And I mean I like was surrounded by people who were starving themselves. Yes. So it was just like it was like in the aughts, you could not be too thin. Mm-hmm. Seriously. It was really, really insidious. Um, well, okay. Let's talk about gentrification first, and then we'll talk about bimbofication because mm-hmm. I have been noticing it. Uh, yeah. I think, man, I think about gentrification all the time, and I think about how I feel that in the past five, ten years, it's actually been happening faster than ever. And Highland Park is a really great example because when I first moved to L.A., I lived there, and for the most part, it was not gentrified. And then it happened so fast that even the house I rented was sold for like $5 million, and wow. – I couldn't afford to live in that neighborhood anymore, you know? Um, I was thinking a lot about Boyle Heights, which is another part of Mm -hmm. L.A. that definitely people who had been priced out of Highland Park who were hipsters were moving towards. And Boyle Heights is a a predominantly Latinx neighborhood and has been for generations. And they – that community was like, guess what? Get your art gallery out of here get your coffee shop out of here. We do, we're not going to let our neighborhood be taken. Yeah. Yeah. And Uh there was a lot of outrage about that. Um, like the part of the hipsters. And I was like, good for you because definitely the people who lived in Highland park when I first moved there and Hey, I'm guilty of gentrifying too. I'm like a hipster who moved in there because it was affordable and it was near the train station, you know, cause I didn't drive, but I have seen how these neighborhoods can price people out so fast. And I was thinking also of in Portland, Portland has always been a predominantly white city and it's because it has a really, really dark racist past where like non-white people weren't even allowed to be in the city. But it did have a historically black neighborhood uh, that was pretty close to downtown. It was in North Portland. And it's actually, when we talk about like the Mississippi area, Alberta, these are like considered like the hubs of like the hipsters, the hipster communities of maybe like 2010 there. That is the neighborhood. And they moved to New Seasons in there, which is like a healthy grocery store. It's very upscale. And the entire neighborhood was gone. Like it was Mm. replaced by like white people who are like graphic designers for Nike. It's really, like it was just so fast, Kim. And I wonder about gentrification Mm -hmm. because I don't know what there's left to gentrify right now. I've thought about that. I'm like, what? Right? What? I mean, the rent is already insanely high. Everywhere. Everywhere now. In, everywhere. Even in, you know, kind of ungentrified places, it's still ridiculously high. Yeah. And, you know, in, in regards to the, the Gen Z and how Gen Z is going to, will they continue the gentrification trend? Absolutely. I mean, it it also just depends on the, what the trends of people moving to cities are and if people are going to continue, you know, that – I mean, it's been, what, a trend for how many you know, decades of people moving to cities because they wanted to be parts of different scenes, which I'm about to talk about, mm-hmm. um, or if if people will be more virtu- – have more virtual scenes and be able to, to be um, – you know, in not not necessarily localized in the cities. It, it, that totally depends. But I, like the consumerist culture is not going anywhere. No, and no. I, it might change the products. You know, we might not be records. I don't know. Are Gen Z kids into records? I don't feel like they are. I, I, that, li- yeah, I would have not to explore as much. that. Not as much. I don't think. Not as much as the millennials were. Yes. But or and are of course. Uh, I do wonder because I do think that the 
I do think we're going to look back and we're going to think about the world pre-pandemic and post, mm-hmm. right? And our lives. And we know people are scattering. I mean, I live out my I live basically on a farm right now, right? Yeah, <laughs> um, and yeah. I'm a diehard hipster city dweller. And I do wonder what does the future look like? I actually mm-hmm. almost was wondering if we were going to see a gentrification of rural areas. I think we are. I mean, we actually are. I mean, we already now. are. We're in it. Yeah. Hearing like Idaho is starting to see these wow. insane increases in people moving out there, you know, and that's, I think that's going to keep, that's going to keep happening. But, you know, <laughs> I, 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 yeah, I, I don't know if that will even affect anything in like these big cities that already have like the, the, the cool culture already set up and amazing restaurants and, you know, the coffee shops and the four, um, record stores on the street with the barber shops in them, you know? Dude, I know. I mean, I do wonder, I think about like New York, for example, like it's been a really long time since I had a friend who could afford to live in Manhattan. And now actually multiple friends of mine have moved back into Manhattan yeah. because rents have gone down. And so I think things are going to be a little different afterwards. It seems like yes. San Francisco is kind of like, hey, no one needs to come back to work here in the tech industry ever. It's all going to be remote. And like I saw I saw tech bros ruin San Francisco, you know, yes. and they have been ruining Portland to a certain extent, too. So I think and they, ru- they ruined Brooklyn, too. There's yeah, a bunch I heard that. And I heard, the, the I heard they're ruining like Venice, you know, like Venice, California, yeah. too. So uh, yeah. the tech bros, the blight on our civilization, apparently, uh, are going to be scattering. <laughs> so I... The blight. I kind of can't wait to see what happens. You know what I mean? Like it's anyone's game, but I think what we think of as gentrification is going to change. It's like 52 card pickup, you know, that we just throw everything up into the air and where (laughs) it lands in a year. That's how I feel. There's no way. If you had told me in 2019 that in 2020, I was going to move out to the country. I would have laughed right. at you. I mean, Dustin and I are like city people. Um, and we actually love it out here. You know, I think for us, I mean, we weren't happy in Philly anyway, but like the pandemic really underscored, you know, we lived in what was a rapidly gentrifying neighborhood as well. And we were like, this sucks. You know, <laughs> like yeah. it just sucks here. So I, I think it'll be interesting to see. I mean, it's anyone's guess. I do think that technology in the past year has changed the way our relationships exist and what we think of as important relationships in our life. So like you were saying, I think that the the sense of like community might exist online and then it won't matter yeah. where you live. Exactly. I mean, I was just saying, I don't even know if I was, I was talking to Neil today and I was like, I don't even, I don't, I don't live in LA right now. I literally live in a space. Yeah. No, that's, that's just I it get could be it. anywhere. It, it doesn't really anywhere. matter. Yeah. I mean, it'd be interesting to see what happens in LA too, because LA is a really hard place to find an apartment um, because it's super mm-hmm. competitive. It's really expensive. And I wonder if that's going to get easier too. Or did a lot of people scatter out to I've heard where? of a lot I have of no idea. Moving. That's what I've Especially heard Especially a lot of families with yeah. children are just they're they're leaving. They're moving. They're moving to closer to their families. Like mm-hmm. people are just reassessing what's important to them. I think so too. And and being a part of a scene and a culture and having to be like the first in line for the next cronut is not as important as human connection. Well, and like <laughs> you know? I don't I don't know how it was in Brooklyn, but I'm assuming it was pretty similar. And that in Portland in in the aughts, you almost never met anybody who was actually yes. from there. 
And we had all moved far away from our families mm-hmm. and our loved ones to build this new community. And I know that a lot of people who I knew who were living in New York, for example, moved back home with their parents. And I kind of mm-hmm. wonder, we're now like a year into this. Are they ever going back? I don't know. I, I, I mean, you know, and I'm actually about to talk about that. And that was actually one of one of my points is that you don't really know. And nobody was from where no. they moved to. But that giant, giant, like, um, exodus of people from smaller towns to large towns, I think people are starting to settle. Like, to, that's starting to go backwards. I think so, too. I think so. And not just not just millennials who are getting older and getting freaked out. I think Gen Z mm-hmm. also. And, well, I will say, like, you know, Dylan is Gen Z. And the thing that struck me most about them is that their friends are from all over and none of them live in a city and they're all really cool. Yeah. And they're all virtual. Yeah. 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 I think the virtual community is going to start supporting. I, I mean, I was kind of part of a, um, of a virtual concert um, where it was one of Neil's friends had set up a, a live show and this, a musician just played for everyone on like a zoom call. And then, you know, you donated money um, via uh, Venmo mm-hmm. and it was really cool. And like the sound was actually really good and you could just do it from your own home. I mean, I, I was like, Oh man, <laughs> this is definitely going to change things. I think so too. Yeah. I'm excited yeah. about it. Bring it on. We were living a very unsustainable life anyway. We were. Yeah, really. And then bimbofication, <laughs> which I think is really cool because I did some exploring when, she, you know, mm-hmm. when when Kristen talked about this, about bimbo talk, which is, you know, obviously, you know, Gen Z loves aesthetics mm-hmm. and all they're doing is gravitating towards nostalgic, nostalgic aesthetics and breathing new life into them and kind of changing them to their own kind of platform for Gen Z um, commentary. So like this bimbofication thing, it is a talking like the baby voices and it's all like this hyper fetishized, like sexualization, erotica kind of thing of like 2000s trends, but it's all a platform for pro sex work, pro LGBTQ, pro, you know, BLM, anti-consumerist. It's very interesting. Well, I think so. I have I have some thoughts there. I Yeah, let's hear. I give almost everybody who comes on Close Horse a spiel before we start recording just like, you know, this is what it's going to be like if you need to take a break, all that stuff. And one thing I say to all of them is that I will not edit out your likes and your whatever and you know what I mean. Uh, I'm not going to try to play down your vocal fry if you have it. Uh, because I think it's time for us to reevaluate what an intelligent person sounds like. It mm-hmm. shouldn't be the tone of their voice or even the slang or sort of speech habits that they have. It should be what they're saying. And I will tell you, for a lot of the podcasts I listen to, if there's a male and a female host on there, I go into their reviews on Apple Podcasts, and there's always a bunch of fucking incels over there being like, this would be a better podcast if I didn't have to listen to her vocal fry. Or if she could say smart words as much as she says like, she would be better. And you know what? I am going to – I'm sorry. I cannot wait – for the day someone leaves a review like that on Close Horse because I am going to blow that shit up. Because the <laughs> idea that saying like or you know or whatever. Valley or, girl speak. Yeah, valley girl speak or like 
vocal fry or having a baby voice as a person who has been told I have a sexy baby voice. I, I feel seen here. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I'm going to say those, those ideas that if you, if you have any of those qualities that you aren't intelligent, that what you're saying isn't worth hearing, those are so sexist, mm-hmm. so classist, and just so just so old-timey. And I'm just like so glad that kids mm-hmm. are like, yeah, fuck that. I'm going to be yeah. a real weird sexy baby and talk yes. about capitalism. <laughs> like yes. I am here for it. Let's re- redefine who gets to be intelligent. You know, and Let's who gets to be heard? Something that yeah. was so toxic and and so like um, manipulated, and let's turn it into something as a voice for good. Yeah, and if that's who you really are, mm-hmm. and that's like being your purest awesome. self, fucking go for it. It's when people do it as a put on because they think that's what they need to do to be desirable that it's problematic, mm-hmm. and that's why it was problematic in the aughts. Yeah, this is kind of it's an aesthetic. It's like it's like taking this this kind of interesting subversion, and men and women are doing it too. I was I was watching some of these. I actually didn't really know this existed, uh, <laughs> so I'm really excited to to see. But there's like an aesthetic for everything now, you know. And yeah. I think and obviously there's a trend to two thousands. Mm-hmm. So I will be really really excited when TikTok kids start doing hipsters. I mean, oh I'm sure they God. probably have I them. I can't wait. I can't wait. Anyway, so that's kind of setting the tone as we get into some more hipster talk. Did you have anything else to add? I just wanted to say thank you to Kristen and Danny for calling with such great messages. And I can't wait to hear the messages that are going to come in this week. So please keep them coming. You know, it inspires us. We love hearing from you. We love knowing what you like. We love knowing what you want to hear more about. And I feel like we're really lucky because from what I can gather from all the messages we've received so far, all of our listeners are really smart and interesting. Yes. I know. I'm just like, oh my gosh. It's it's like we have all these new friends. I know. I love it. Uh-huh. All right. Well, I'm going to get in here. Um, and like I said, this is kind of about the subcultures within the hipsters because we always allude to them and kind of talk slightly about them. So this is actually just talking more about the subcultures and then the trends that kind of helped evolve them. So, you know, hipsters had regional subcultures, um, but the most notorious and prolific that really had their own iterations in any city were the quote unquote scene stars. Which could be an insult, just going to say. Totally. Much in the way it was insulting to call a hipster a hipster, I think it was more insulting to call them a scene star. Yeah. But most were kind of scene stars. Yeah, no, they definitely were. <laughs> Isn't I mean, it ironic, was, don't you think? Yeah, it's so ironic. Um, <laughs> you know, and I mean, actually, if you go onto Wikipedia and you t- you look up scene stars for 2000s, it's something kind of different. Like whatever they describe, I don't know who is owning that Wikipedia page, but I'm like, that's okay, whatever. That's it was kind of like a strange, like, like post emo something. It was very, it was very different than what I would have described the scene stars. Right, so, right. so don't go to Wikipedia. Go to us for this one. Um, so it's a kind of a rather generalized term, and it's oftentimes looked pretty like the people within this actually surprisingly looked pretty similar um and actually followed a lot of the same trends no matter where you were and the kind of lack of um you know uh mobile phones at the time you know i think we had like flip phones oh yeah Um, but you know they all enjoyed the same music 
And the bands actually influence a lot of the fashion styles. Um, so if you follow the same music, you likely wore a lot of the same clothing trends. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I definitely um, think that's going to come up a lot tonight. Mm-hmm. That the, these different these different hipsters had a uniform, and it tied mm-hmm. back to the music. It's so fascinating. Yeah. Well, because it was also the same icons. You know, these mm-hmm. scenesters had the same icons, and they were usually just the members of the bands. Yeah, every time. Every uh, man working on my part of the episode tonight, it was just like so many bands and musicians mm-hmm. I hadn't thought of in so long. I kind of want to make a Spotify playlist of all these. I think, I might. Oh, will you please? Yeah, and I'll, sh- I'll share it because it was like, ah. Oh. I can add it to the website. I would yeah, love that. Yeah. And, and you know, I'm kind of, I'm, I'm using very vague kind of um, slightly more commercialized bands, band names in here. I mean, there's definitely going to be some really amazing underground ones. And Amanda, you're welcome to add to any of these ones that I mentioned. Yeah. Okay. So that's a project for me this week. I'm going to make a Spotify playlist of the different scenes we're talking about tonight. Oh my gosh. It's so exciting. Um, So, okay. What I was saying is that they had a lot of the same icons that were mostly, you know, from the bands uh, that they were following. They read the same blogs and consumed pretty much the same magazines like Vice. So, you know, the consumption was, no matter where you were, it, it it kind of helped dictate those 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 trends, and so everyone kind of wore the same clothing: American Apparel, skinny jeans, deep deep neck tees, blazers, <laughs> scarves, glasses. This the same stuff we've talked about, just based on what the bands were wearing and the, what Vice was showing. Um, and scenes don't just happen; you know, a trend has to drive them, and I think that's kind of what we were talking about. In, um, about, you know, for the gentrification or the degentrification also. Um, so you can't have a legitimate scene without a legitimate amount of people. And so how and why did the scene form in these hotspots? So I'm going to take us back, you guys. So right around Y2K, 1999 was a cesspool of garbage <laughs> music. Really- it really was. Like the worst thing you could say in 1999 was like you listened to the radio. Yeah. It was uh, so or bad. MTV. Yeah. So we saw some really dark times in music, which was being <laughs> bastardized by really gross like new metal bands like Limp Biscuit and Korn, the boy bands like InSync. I mean, this is, I think, you know, really when record industry was um, they were putting a lot of money into these different um, music genres and bands and just pushing them out in every avenue. Um, we had the gross new grunge groups like Creed. I mean, everyone saw that with, you know, with the, um, I, I guess it was like the indie rock scene, the alternative rock scene of the nineties, they could make a ton of money off of it. So, so, you know, obviously the music industry was supporting all this garbage. Um, so Woodstock 99 lineup. <laughs> it really I, – I mean, I looked at the lineup and I could not. Oh, my God. Dustin and I make laughing. fun of Woodstock 99 all the time. Uh. It it's probably goes down in history as one of the most disappointing lineups. And, Amanda, I added the flyer here, and I really wanted you to entertain everyone with some of the groups in this epic event. I mean, I will say this. It reminds me of Coachella in that Coachella is a little bit of everything. Yeah. So, like, we've got Aerosmith. Okay, first yeah. off, 
I think the lineup on this poster is in alphabetical order, which is it not is. something you see a lot. You know, it is. it's alphabetical. They they they, they didn't want to they don't, they didn't want to support something. Oh man, I mean, there's yeah. a little bit of everything. So like, there's Aerosmith. Um, there's Fat Boy Slim, Bush, uh, yeah, Jamiroquai, Dave uh-huh. Matthews Band, <laughs> Kid Rock, uh, Red Hot Chili Peppers, The Offspring. Oh. Man, I mean. But then there's Just. like it's 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 all over the place. Uh yeah. I think it's oh Creed. Creed there. Limp Limp Biscuit and Corn. Cheryl Crow, how'd she end up there? I don't know. This I mean so bizarre. <laughs> it is the weirdest lineup ever. A lot of more set. Oh my god. Live, which is from my hometown. Yes. <sighs> it's just, Rusted Root. I forgot about the them. Wait, did we say Sugar Ray yet? <laughs> You know, you might as well just say it multiple times. Sugar Ray. Jewel. How did Jewel get dragged into this? Ice Cube. What is supposed to be this ultimate, ultimate event of just (sighs) music and culture is just like the grossest uh, Ticketmaster supported MTV bastardized piece of shit. I mean, looking at this poster, this is so indicative of what uh-huh. mainstream music was at this time. Like, no mm-hmm. wonder hipsters were so, like, self-absorbed and anti-corporate because they were like, yeah. we cannot – we cannot go to a show like this. No. Like, you took over some sort of, you know – so weird. <laughs> painful. And, you know, don't, don't – do not get me wrong. We had some good music at this time, too. But mm-hmm. there was just a ton of mainstream crap, yeah. You know, yeah. Um, and you know, uh, you know, MTV was originally respected, I think, by a lot of like you know alternative kids. You know, that's kind of how you learned a lot, a lot about some of the new music. And then by this time period, it was just shit, and no self-respecting cool kid really listened to MTV or <laughs> no. Woodstock. Like, would it, go to Woodstock. Yeah, no, no one. And MTV, like. It's so funny because I felt like when we were teenagers, MTV was so important. And yeah. then I just – it was like the switch got flipped and they only played garbage because they didn't play that many videos anymore. Yeah. And it was all like And it was DRL just all commercials. Yeah, yeah. It just sucked. Right. So- it, right. It was It was like – it was like – what was that beach house one where they're all dancing <laughs> by Club, pool? Yes, yes. Yes. I mean, I think it was called the MTV Beach House. But yeah, I mean, it, oh. just, it just got – like I feel like – in the early 90s, MTV was, like, really awesome, mm-hmm. and it was, like, a great resource for all of us who were, like, living, you know, in the suburbs or the country, and, like, we could find our people and our music, like, there's 120 yeah. minutes and all of that, and then then it just turned into fucking Woodstock 99 everywhere <laughs> all the time. <laughs> Woodstock 99, which it has been really fun to relive because I remember it was just like an absolute tragic event with mudslides and just like – I believe there was a lot of sexual assault there. Yeah. There was like a like mosh pits and like (laughs) – it's just just like people that love Creed (laughs) and Limp Bizkit. Oh my gosh. Do you remember how there was that meme that was going around that was a guy who put a weird – oh my god, wait. Is your dad – is Mr. Christensen listening to this? Okay, I'm just going to say it really fast. There was a Craigslist ad that was going around, going viral around 2010, where a guy was like looking for guys to go camping with him and listen to Creed and like do masturbation together. Oh gosh, like that circle jerk? Yes. <laughs> do you remember this? I'm no. going to find it for you because it's so, I remember it was ridiculous. 
Okay, so I, okay, like like I said, um, you know, there was some cool music. There was some cool like emo and Britpop and you know like whatever. I'm sure Amanda, you you, you can. Re- I don't even remember honestly. I feel <laughs> I feel like I was listening to like Bob Dylan a lot at that time period. <sighs> I, mean, I was I'm thinking ninety nine. Like, here's here's what I'm thinking. People were getting really into Radiohead. Um, oh right, Radiohead, yep. Uh, Seeger Rose. Uh, maybe oh, maybe yeah. it was coming up. Maybe not yet. Maybe that was another year away. Bell and Sebastian, mm-hmm. Elliot Smith. Um, I was getting into cla- like I was finding classic music, mm-hmm, like classic rock. Mm-hmm. I was like actually finding it and being like, oh my god, this is so much better than the shit. Yeah, yeah, definitely, <laughs> definitely. I was definitely getting into stuff that was like older than me at that point. Pavement. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Definitely cool stuff. But anyway, so the turn of the century brought in something wonderful and ex- an unexpected that I believe really fueled the 2000s scene and scenester culture in a lot of regions, especially New. New York, probably Portland as well. And I'm talking about garage rock and the post-punk revival. Arguably one of the biggest catalysts for hipster culture was this like cult-like obsession of the new sound style and this new quote-unquote scene that came with it. So, you know, hipsters were super social and they came together because of a joint taste and fashion sensibility, but also their enjoyment of music in urban hotspots. You know, because obviously you couldn't see a live music in in just any place. Like, you know, these bands would only go to certain areas. So generally that was kind of where the hipsters started kind of congregating so they could, they could all be together listening to music, you know, mm-hmm. all that stuff. And it was mostly determined by the band's music followings and aesthetics um, and I know we may have some hipsters listening, so I'm just using some really big names. So don't shoot me for, <laughs> if I don't mention you're the most influential local group. I'm just saying this is <laughs> a broad stroke. Um, I mean, I feel like this podcast would be like 10 hours long if we got super deep. Into oh, specifics. yeah, totally. <laughs> but Amanda, you're welcome to also add in here. Okay, um, okay. Because my mine is super specific to basically Madison, Wisconsin, and and Brooklyn, New York. Um, but so band cultures and scenes were so diverse, based, you know, on on whatever kind of really local scene was happening. So, um, you know, also never forget that this was the time period of the trend of using the word "the" in your mm-hmm, band name. Mm-hmm. It was like that was like the hipster the hipster thing was to have a the in front of your band name. Anyway, so the locality was evident in which type of scenesters came together. So Chicago was like Wilco. Mm-hmm. Um, SF had like Black Rebel Motorcycle Club and Brian Jones Town Massacre. Portland, Amanda, you can speak to more. It's like Dandy Warhols. Who else did you have that was like really big? Uh, eventually the Decemberists, which were oh. very different. Remember that? Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, the Shins. Mm-hmm. Modest Mouse. Oh, yes. We had quite a scene going on. Super scene, you know, and of course, the White Stripes. Oh my God, the first time I heard the White Stripes, I was like, this is the best thing I've ever heard. Oh, amazing. I mean, it just gave you this new sense of, like, the music just inspired you. Mm -hmm. And that was, you know, the Detroit rock scene just completely revitalized in the Midwest with, like, you know, the White Stripes, Von Von Blondies, like, you know. Um, But I think the White Stripes... And what I'm about to, about to get into for New York, The Strokes. Mm, oh, my God. I always forget about them. That's another mm. one because I feel like it was the same 
month or two when um, the White Stripes first album, well, no, maybe it wasn't Destyle. It was the next one, the big one that was like Red Blood Cells or whatever. I feel like that came out at the same time as the Strokes first album or very close together. And so it's there's this like summer that I just think of those two albums playing nonstop. Yes. I mean, the Strokes I didn't really get into because they were so – to me, they were like almost (laughs) – to mass because they were so popular. <laughs> um, but anyway, so in New York, the Strokes, Interpol, the Rapture, oh LCD, yeah, 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 yes, the National TV on the radio, and like a dizzying number of amazing indie bands, as well as many moving from out of state to be a part of this movement that was happening in New York. And New York had an authenticity to the sound, pulling directly from its super influential history in like the 70s and 80s punk and rock scenes, particularly in the Lower East Side, and eventually into Brooklyn, which became the epicenter of the cool universe in the aughts. And where literally, like both of these places were basically magnetic to hipster kids, just coming in droves. It was like this Mm -hmm. insane movement of people moving to the city. Hip kids came with aspirations to be among the cool New York crowd, jumping from small town or smaller city. It was rare, as we just mentioned, to meet someone from New York. Most everyone had moved from another state or even different country. Um, Of course, it must be mentioned that this trend of cool kids moving to specific cities directly affected affordability in the cities and the neighborhoods, causing demand to increase housing shortages and um, rent spikes that are evident still to the today. Um, you know, I put in this little graph here, Amanda, of um, Portland's deep housing shortage has been 10 years in the making. And it was, I was pulled from this um, portlandbike.org uh, or something. I, I have it on, I have it on the website, uh, how hips, the, the change of housing was directly affected by hipsters moving to Portland. Oh my god, totally. My first apartment in Portland cost $530 and was a two bedroom. I mean, just for some context, like yeah. it happened so fast that like yeah. suddenly everybody was paying $1000 for like a one bedroom and there were no like the houses that people had once rented like communally gradually were sold off or torn down and turned into condos and so Everybody was getting priced out, and it was just like every six months, everybody had to move 10 blocks further away from downtown, you know? Mm -hmm. And now they're like out in the suburbs. It's kind of wild. I mean, yeah, obviously New York and Brooklyn also, like, just the rent skyrocketed. And Mm -hmm. um, (laughs) I mean, even LA, when I first moved to LA, it was kind of of affordable, but I know. I would sell it to people that way. I'd be like, it's really affordable here. And then, like, Two years later, it wasn't anymore. That yeah. happened really fast, too. So fast. <laughs> yeah. So fast. All right. So it also brought tons of restaurants, bars, coffee shops, retail, et cetera, to these specific areas that were like the hot spots. Um, so as a very social counterculture with very specific tastes, this was a cash cow for anyone who understood the the consumer. Uh, and let me tell you, unless an out, you know, like an unless an outsider hired a hipster 
for strategy, aesthetics, or branding. (laughs) We basically just stuck out like a sore thumb and the business wouldn't work. There were so many hilarious looking businesses that would pop up from someone from Jersey. (laughs) I bet. They would just, they were like, I remember there was this one that was like in Greenpoint, it was called like wine a lot, you know, and it was like a pun (laughs) and it had like kind of grandma in grandma interior. And I was like, no one's going to go in here. (laughs) Oh my gosh. And they would always struggle, but people really saw this, this, this ability to make a lot of money um, in Williamsburg, (laughs) you know, but you couldn't do it unless you understood the aesthetics. Um, But we could also just smell the inauthenticity a mile away, of course. Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, those businesses were just never successful. And even the word Brooklyn was a highly commoditized branding, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, the the word bringing in this insanely valuable cachet, so Brooklyn Brewery and Brooklyn Industries all propelled oh gosh, growth. I forgot about one. Brooklyn Industries. They, when they opened a location in Portland, oh, I was like, ooh, ooh, like that. It's like the seatbelt bag. Oh, yeah, like if I ever yeah. see that again, gross. Yeah, Oof. but that was also kind of where the programmers really loved those that that product. Yeah. Also. Oh, yeah, for sure. I think that's what kept them going. Mm-hmm. Um, so the look in New York was really iconic and just pure scene, sir. It was like that sexy punk and rock. Everything was black, tons of leather, skinny, everything with like black hair and a scarf. Uh, I mean, I was a buyer for a store that, that was the actual look exclusively at Oak. So we tried other (laughs) styles, other colors. We would try other things, but people, you know, the cust, the customer basically told us that they wanted, in our Williamsburg store and our Bond Street store, which was basically hipster central, and they wanted it black and they wanted it skinny. Mm-hmm. <laughs> always. We yeah. ended up just always buying black, black everything. And we were that's what we were known for. And every musician, artist, celebrity, and hipster shopped at Oak to get that look. And we sold it in droves. Um, also tons of like asymmetrical and drop drop crotch pants. Do you remember that trend? Yeah. Oh my gosh, I totally forgot. We sold those at Urban Outfitters, you know. Huge. Yeah. Um, As the scene in New York developed, we got more parties. And with the parties, the era of the DJ. (laughs) Oh, my God. I'd forgotten about that. (laughs) Yes. And the celebrity DJ just blew up. Mm -hmm. I swear – all of my old boyfriends and all of my friends' old boyfriends are all DJs. Did you have any DJs in your dating profile? You know what? I can't believe it, but no. I But I mean, I dated – almost every dude was in a band, you know. Mm-hmm. Those were my type, I guess. We didn't have – in Portland, we had a few DJs. Mm-hmm. Very few. I mean, there was still – you know, there was some of this like party, wear all black culture in Portland, but it was a small subset. Yeah. And those were the people that you would call scenesters for sure, and they all had the same haircut, and you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. Yeah. I think it was like – it was like you could be in music without having to be in a band was to be a DJ. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, depending on where you live, that was like really important. Like I even think mm-hmm. in LA to a certain extent because parties and being seen at parties, that was a big thing, you know? Yeah. Going out was – nobody went to anyone's house at this point. No, I remember we did like a big study, like consumer profile study at Urban and it was like our – our, our core customers spent like only their sleeping hours at home. That was it. Mm-hmm. And that was like the design of their life. And so that's why they would have a small apartment and stuff like that. Um, it was a little bit different in Portland because people lived in houses there. So we had a lot of parties and shows at houses. 
Yeah. But uh, otherwise, no one spent any time at home, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I think it was was also like what you had access to. I think if we had more houses, we would have had more house parties. But New York, you should have a small apartment. Yeah. Yeah. You you couldn't do that. No. You rarely have friends over. Honestly, it was just like you go out to a bar. Yeah. It was a very, it's very expensive to live in New York because you just go out. Yeah. Like there was no going to people's houses, like no like dinner parties. What are you talking about? <laughs> no, you go out to dinner, you yeah, know? Yeah, yeah. I'm sure it's very, very different now. But um, anyway, so with the like the celebrity DJ, the misshapes were the most oh my iconic. God. I forgot I mean, I about them. them. <laughs> everywhere. So, you know, you played the music at the party of your favorite bands and scenesters would come in droves to be a part of the scene. And that scene could be very, very exclusive, like the misshaped scene. So there was a lot of really great weekly parties and special events in New York, literally always on a weekday, which really shows the consumer, mostly people that didn't need to be up or go to mm-hmm. work at like 9 a.m. Artists, baristas, musicians, trust funders. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the misshape started a weekly party that often hosts other celebrity DJs or live performances by artists like Madonna, Dash Snow, Jarvis Cocker, David Byrne, um, Peaches, Yoko Ono. I mean, literally, like the lineup is insane. So you can imagine the craze and the scene that spiraled around this crew. Literally, they're just DJs. Like they're not making music <laughs> DJs. And they were huge. I mean, um, oh gosh, the the, the female member. Uh, I forget what her name is. I mean, she she was an influencer. She was one of the first influencers of the hipster culture. People would give her products constantly to try to get, you know, in front of more hipsters to sell yeah, their yeah. products. So it was a shit show. Rubbing elbows with hipster royalty was the draw. And so was being snapped by a party photographer like lastnightsparty.com. Uh, any given day, you know, you go to a bar or party and there was like Natasha Leone running around in a Superman costume or David Cross being super creasy, creepy to girls, uh, Chloe Sevigny or the Olsen twins, even Bjork at a house party. Um, and hence the origins, as I'd mentioned before, of 2000s FOMO. And FOMO was just baked into the culture and I would argue was literally the driving force of the great migration of hipsters into these cities. Mm-hmm. I think so, for sure. Yeah. yeah. Kids seeing all the fun in Vice, V Magazine, whatever, or online hipster blogs, which was becoming universal and easily accessible with the advent of affordable internet, mm-hmm. which allowed everyone to stalk these parties and photo sites, you know? I mean, that, like, mass exodus, or I'm sorry, not exodus, migration of mm-hmm. hipsters to these cities – it, it was all because everyone just felt like they were missing out in this amazingness. And you could just be a part of it. Anyone could be a part of it. You didn't have to be a celebrity. So within this subculture, there was a sub-subculture. And I believe you had this in Portland also. Um, within the Scenesters, which was the Electra Clash. Oh, my God. Which, it was so huge in Portland. Yeah. Yeah. It, sure. I loved it. I, it was definitely part of... I was part Scenester, part Electro Clash right at the beginning. Because um, Electro Clash really only went to 2004, and then it just immediately died out. Yeah, it was so short-lived. Like, I have mm-hmm. just such brief memories of it um, and c- kind of, like, what it turned into. But it was so, so massive in Portland. We had a band called Glass Candy that was a part of that, which later became the Chromatics. That was, like, the evolution yes. beyond Electro Clash. And we had, like, 
Tracy and the Plastics. I think maybe she was from Olympia, so like pretty close. And we had one club in town where these electro class shows would happen. It was called The Dunes. And originally it was a speakeasy, and I swear it was the size of a studio apartment. Um, and everybody would dress super 80s, like mm-hmm. 80s cocktail gowns were in for this, yeah. you know? Oh, so it was such a weird and short time. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, as you've seen, if you if you follow our Instagram, you will definitely see my fashion mullet that I had, which was <laughs> really like a big part of like the Electric Clash mo- movement. Yeah, was, was yeah. Kind of like really aggressive um, fashion hairstyles, um, you know, and it, you know, Electroclass was basically like this hipster industrial electronic punk and rock blend style with like a really edgy angle, mm-hmm. kind of like a weird performance art based sister of the Very scene. Very performance art based. I would say that was like, like Tracy and the plastics, the music was almost irrelevant. It was the performance. Yeah. It was the, yeah, it wasn't really about, necessarily always the sound it was the performance behind it and the message she's like how many people are sitting down right now listening to peaches and just kicking back no you're not it's like that's not what it's about yeah it it was performative it was racy and aggressive but it was also Mm pro-queer which was super progressive at that time definitely um, and I actually really liked a lot of the music, um, but also, yeah, it's not something that you're going to kick back and like just take in. <laughs> Throw on a <laughs> no. album. Yeah, yeah. Um, so the style was all angles and asymmetrical clothing, super pointy shoes, lots of leather. A lot of the look was based on that cult '80s film, Liquid Sky, um, which is this a really awesome sci-fi electronic punk amaziness. Mm-hmm. Which the plot line is absolutely terrible <laughs> yes. but the fashion is amazing <laughs> we would literally have like theaters showing liquid sky periodically during this yeah. time period once again it was a very short period but yeah. i remember this film coming up constantly <laughs> yes constantly <laughs> and i didn't even know about it and i had a friend who worked uh i, had, I actually we had, I had a bunch of friends a lot of my um hipster friends actually worked at the video store oh my r.i.p not them yeah but the video store the video store and i remember one of my friends jermaine was like have you ever seen this video liquid sky it just reminds me of your style which is really funny that she would say that also because <laughs> i don't i don't know i don't know if she even really knew that liquid sky was part of this movement maybe wow. she did i don't know wow. that is interesting she was from New York, so she definitely brought a pretty cool, you know, <laughs> knowledge base with her. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. So the Electroclash scene was led by Fisher Spooner, Lady Tron, Felix de Housecat, Peaches, Chicks on Speed, um, you know, to name a few. Obviously, Amanda mentioned some also. I really love that music. I really felt it, it was a great dance music. Um, and I kind of learned about it. I think in Nylon magazine in like 2002 while well, I was in I was in fashion school Gosh, in Madison. How cool Nylon was. We yes. definitely need to do an episode where we talk about Nylon. I was already thinking I about that. It. Yeah. I loved Nylon. It really had such a great perspective. Um you know, I started to make my own clothing because you couldn't really get electric clash clothing no. in Madison, Wisconsin. Definitely not. <laughs> um and we would have these awesome dance house dance parties, you know. Um, so I would make um, asymmetrical shirts and dresses and things, and we would just go and dance and have a blast. Um, it's also speaking of Fisher Spooner, just a casually culture drop here. I actually inter- interned at the now defunct label Libertine, oh, wow. which was 
owned by Cindy Green, who was a vocalist in Fisher Spooner back in the early um, New York aughts while I was in fashion school. Um, wow. And uh, Libertine was this brand, if you don't know, that was like basically the first upcycler lines mm-hmm. out there. Yeah, it was and really cool. Really cool. And so we would go shopping at these New York resale shops and, you know, we would screen print skulls and things. <laughs> On button-ups and blazers and trench coats, and they would sell at Barney's for luxury price points. Dude, it's so funny, though. When you describe what it is, it's like, oh. But yes, very relevant at the time. There was like, yeah, they had had runway shows. They were really, really popular. And I I mean, I would be at the studio and just celebrities would come in and out all day long. And I would just be like, you know, kind of, you know, I'm like 24 years old and just totally, you know, my mind is blown by all this, the celebrities coming in and out. Um, <laughs> um, so like I said, you know, Electric Class really only lasted until about 2004, which was rather sad. Um, you know, I was actually listening to some music this week and it's still just so good. Um, and just like kind of just gets your heart pumping. It went away so fast, Kim. It, it kind of, well, like you said, it it changed to a less performative, more like grounded beat. Definitely more pop, chromatic, dancey. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like the chromatics to me seems way more. I mean, it's all relative, but way poppier than mm-hmm. Glass Candy. But I like Glass Candy better. But I know chromatics has been wildly more successful. Yeah, it, it probably is just it's probably just more commercial, like yeah, you're saying. It's like yeah, they just make more money, mm-hmm. but they're really talented, you know. So yeah. maybe they just like they were able to like propel themselves into the scene and and be seen m- by more people because they they had this like um, the showmanship, and then they were able to translate it into a much more profitable business mm-hmm. band mm-hmm. business. All right, so the last one I'm going to talk about here is a hipster that we allude to and joke about a lot. <laughs> <laughs> the um, ye old hipster. <laughs> oh, man. I know. I was looking at your notes earlier, and I was like, oh, my God. Because this is one – I will say that, like, we had a tiny electro clash scene in Portland, but it was it was small, right? And it was very short-lived. But then the, the legacy of the ye old knew no bounds. It landed in all cities. It's still cities. going. <laughs> I'll say you're ye olds. I mean, I think that the Portland ye olds are, they must be so much funnier than the Brooklyn ones because I've like seen your ye olds on those weird tall bikes. Oh my God. Kim, one time, one time I was walking home from work Uh and I stop at a red light waiting for my chance to cross and a ye old pulls up on one of those tall bikes (laughs) and he leans over and he says, you have really beautiful hair. <laughs> I, just, I know. I felt really oh. dirty. <laughs> oh, gosh. Did he have a mustache with like the mustache? Of course wax? he did. Uh, of course. That's how you oh. identify a yield. Also, I like, I don't know if this was happening in Williamsburg, but like we had at least half a dozen unicycle stores in Portland. <laughs> no, we didn't because it was too dangerous. Oh, my God. I remember or reading – like I remember literally reading an article where it was like we had six to ten unicycle <gasps> stores at one point. And this is not a big city, you know? And It's like carnival. I know. Well, <laughs> some of those carnival guys, they maybe oh. were like yieldy. I don't know. Anyway. Yeah, it's like a yield clown. <laughs> there was this guy I would see every day on my way to work. So mm-hmm. I would ride a bike to work, right? And – 
the thing about Portland is it's like a city of bridges. I mean, you've been there, right? You've come mm-hmm. to see there's a mm-hmm. river. It separates both sides of town. So you just have to, to get from one side to the other. You have to climb over these bridges. And on a bike, it's hard work because you're going up, up, up. You got, and Then you're on the bridge and you got to go down. Uh-huh. There was this guy who was on the same commuting schedule as me. And he was a yield. He had the mustache. He, he did have a backpack. And he rode uh-huh. a unicycle. And he would be ahead of me in the bike lane. I mean, Kim, just... Just pedaling okay. so hard. That is commitment. I know, to I know. And I would see him sometimes during hot weather because you know he's like he's pedaling his heart out to get this unicycle up the bridge. Okay, it's hard enough on a bike. And he would in the summertime sometimes bike to and from work without his shirt on. Okay. His shirt would be in his backpack, I guess. Oh. And I just he did this for a really long time. Like, oh. this is a commitment to being a ye old that, you know, say what you will about them. They really yeah. stick to things. They do. <laughs> I mean, I mean, the transition must have been really amazing for their his family or friends to watch. <laughs> he slowly got more, like, got it. But it was like, oh, okay, he's got, oh, he's got like a, 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 a mustache growing. Okay, oh, he's starting to use some sort of disgusting, waxy substance that kind of cakes up on it. Oh, oh. Oh no! Like oh, he's wearing suspenders. That, That's charming. Yeah, the susp- oh, the suspenders. Oh, he's doing pour over. Wait, what's this? What's this unicycle? <laughs> <laughs> like Kim, you'd go to a coffee shop and there'd be a unicycle locked up out front. <laughs> <laughs> you could go in and you knew who it belonged to. Steal that! <laughs> oh my god! I mean, just that. I mean, it just is ridiculous. Like, I definitely think that the Portland Ye Olds were particularly comedic. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, they just – I guarantee we could go there now. Well, I hear Portland's sort of semi-a wasteland right now because of the pandemic and everything mm-hmm. else going on there. But I feel like we could go there and find someone on a unicycle right now. <laughs> I think you can – I feel like Portlandia – I'm sure you'll talk about Portlandia, but I feel like Portlandia has touched on this too. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. Yes. <laughs> it, it, it brings me so much joy to to know that these caricatures of of people exist, and I just really wish I knew what his job was. And I mean, I, I like around. to think he went to like an office. Yeah, I think he did. <laughs> and and people took him seriously. Yeah, yeah, they saw his unicycle locked up out front, and they didn't judge him. They judged him on his work. Okay. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> digression. <laughs> but it's, it's the best of digressions because I did want to hear about your ye old hipsters because the Brooklyn ye old hipster was a little bit, I mean, definitely affected, but um, affected, I suppose, affected, um, uh, but a little more serious, very, very smug. Oh, um, yeah. you know? And we we should really give them more credit. Um, you know, because within their smugness, they really brought a lot of great trends that we all just enjoy so much today as mainstream. Mm-hmm. I'm not unicycles, but like other things. I agree. <laughs> not unicycles and not like beard or mustache wax. No, and like gross. Crazy. It's gross. No, disgusting. <laughs> Ugh. Um, okay. Now you'd see this type out for sure. But from my experience, the Brooklyn yields were not really into the scene as much. Um, you know, I, I found them to be not just smug as I previously mentioned, but also rather elusive. You know what? You're right. I don't feel like I would see them at parties and shows. You'd see no. them at a coffee shop. 
at yeah. a restaurant, at a bookstore, perhaps. They were like, serious. You'd, you'd see like there was some like um, Hasidic hipsters that you would see on the scene, which were always really, really awesome to see. But the ye olds, it was like they were too good to be a part of the scene or they just were into like maybe like ukuleles or like some other type of music. And we, I just was not interested in it, you know, so I never – I never really knew where they were, um, but I saw them everywhere, you know. And anyway, they were mostly male. Mm-hmm. I'm having a hard time remembering a single female ye old. No, I think no. Th- they were there were none. There were none for sure. <laughs> what would they be doing? They'd be like pulling up in like a bonnet or something. I don't even right. know. Yeah, right. Exactly. Well, now obviously it's cottage core. Yeah, but now I have a hard time. Of, I feel like a cottage core would be way too like I don't know rural for a ye old. <laughs> Yeah, and I feel like the ye olds, I think you're about to get into the the DIY ones. I feel like they maybe liked the DIY girls a little bit more. That's what I'm thinking too. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It was like, um, uh, who's, uh, what's her name from the new girl? Oh, um, Zoe Deschanel. Yes. So, like, I think that Zoe those – those that's a, you're totally hitting the nail on the head there. Those ye olds liked that kind of girl. Like that yeah. kind of girl who was like quirky and vintage and maybe shopped at Mod Cloth. M- Miranda July. Yes, yes. definitely. Yeah. Definitely shopped at Mod Cloth. Um, or, yeah, or I was just about to say Brooklyn Industries, which was always super devastating to see people wearing the Brooklyn Industries fashion. <laughs> oh, my God. Um, I, I just hated it. It was always so disappointing. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so, you know, they're, they are generally a cross between, you know, like one of those like 1800s, 1900s, what is it, wrestler photos with the crazy mustache. Yes, yes. And, and like a nautical theme with some like lumberjack. Yeah. Mixed in. It was just they, they were from a different time. Just a different time. Yeah. Facial hair was a very distinct indicator of a ye old. There was a nostalgia for old timey, slow style and taste. And grooming was one of the most particular trends that came out of this, with the old fashioned classic barber shop just blowing up. Mm-hmm. I mean, and still around. You it's know? still around. Like it has actually become a very, very popular element of like self care for men, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, I went to a few of these barber shops in Williamsburg, and I have to admit, it was like a treat. To, I mean, I didn't. I didn't actually get the treatments myself. I would go with a friend, mm-hmm. um, but it was like this really like rugged, cool version. You know, you get like the the hot, um, the hot towels and just like a shave, and like it's just a very, very nice experience. You know, I like a, a hipster metrosexual situation. <laughs> so ye olds took themselves and their specific tastes slash hobbies. Very, very seriously. Heritage came back. Anything that could move to its original handcrafted form did. Ironically, Ye Old set up shop in these decaying industrial neighborhoods and revived pre-industrial artisanal consumption and production as a trend. Handmade leather boots, you know, handcrafted pickles, bitters, handmade artisanal chocolates, craft beer, craft everything, Mm -hmm. really. Um, You know, it was a new form of this conscious consumption and the ingredients. And like going back to the original, you know, production and development and product. Additionally, mason jars, classic cocktails, pour over coffee, 
Sailor Jerry tattoos, vinyl records. I mean, granted, those were popular with most hipsters. Mm-hmm. Um, the most authentic and original to pre-industrial as humanly possible was the only acceptable form of most everything. Fashion, we saw raw denim and selvage denim really hitting. Plaids and flannels, rimmed hats and suspenders. Uh, I think some of the really serious ones had an elaborate situation like a pipe or typewriter. <laughs> remember typewriters? I remember a friend of mine who who was not a yield. It's just like a, a weird dude. Uh, he was telling me how he'd been thrown out of the lobby at the Ace Hotel. For, and he couldn't believe what – he couldn't believe it. And I was like – yeah, I've never heard of that. Like, what were you doing? And he's like, I don't know. I was just there typing on my typewriter and they asked me to leave and not come back. And I was like, yeah, I, do you want to know why they ask you to leave? <laughs> oh, uh, yeah. I feel like there was a lack of self-awareness sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> Almost to the level of like, of like maybe some sort of like disorder, <laughs> you know, like. <laughs> anyway, typewriter. I do remember when typewriters trended for a while. Do you remember that? Oh yeah, for sure, for sure. For sure. I mean, yes, yeah, of course. Um, so with the ye olds, there was a love affair with wood everything. Do you remember? Like everything was wood, like wood outsides, wood insides. You couldn't swing a dead cat without hitting an anchor or something nautical. I mean, this like, stuff. This aesthetic was so <laughs> massive in Portland, and like everything was reclaimed wood. Yes, everything. Reclaimed. Good. Everything, yeah, and and weird nautical anchorness, yeah. For um, sure. It was so pervasive in the aughts, Brooklyn, um, and in so much of that ye old impacted aesthetics. Uh, and there was this movement of branding people, like actual branding, you know, um, marketing people moving in, and that sans serif integrated. So ye old got slicker, mm-hmm. got more minimal the sans serify, but it was still ye old. Like I talked about with mass brothers. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And that's when that taste really kind of started going mainstream. Oh, for sure. And I like, like you were saying, there are a lot of good things that the ye olds made mainstream, like coffee got better, mm-hmm. you know, mixology. Everything. Yeah. E- yeah. Everything got better yeah. They, they were very, it. they were very food and beverage oriented. Mm-hmm. And so I appreciate their contribution, even if, I feel dirty when one of them tells me my hair is pretty <laughs> while they're riding their tall bike. <laughs> Which oh, also, I just want to say in Portland, we also had steampunk people who were like n- loosely affiliated with the ye olds and the steampunk people were definitely into the tall bikes. But you would yes. see a ye old on a tall bike too. You probably mm-hmm. wouldn't see a steampunk on a unicycle, but we did. I was telling <laughs> Um, Kim, that we had this like weird subculture of amateur circus performers, yes, and they might sure. ride a unicycle. <laughs> that is so Portland. I know it was so weird. So I'm going to talk about some of the like West Coast specific subcultures mm-hmm. of hipsters, and the first one is like this is the a perfect transition actually into this, and it's the DIY hipster, aka put a bird on it. Yes. So I have to say this, and I'm being very honest here, that as a person who has grown to consider Portland my hometown because I've lived there more of my adult life than anywhere else, and that's where my family lives, I have a very complicated relationship with Portlandia. In fact, I didn't watch it for years, as as didn't a lot of other Portland people. We just didn't watch it. 
Uh, I only finally gave in and watched it because I was dating a boy who, if you were wondering, he was a sad clown. Um, mm-hmm. And he was an extra in one of the seasons. And so he forced me to watch him. And honestly, he is like one of the most awkward, bad extras ever. <laughs> like he's like smirking right at the camera continuously. <laughs> so I finally watched some of it and I was like, okay, I, I get it. It is like, it's, you know, Portlandia is both too real and mm-hmm. it's still somehow – I mean, it's a satire, right? It made Portland so appealing that tons of uncool people moved to Portland <laughs> and drove up the rental and housing prices, and we all got super bummed out. So I think yeah. anyone who lived in Portland pre-Portlandia has really weird feelings about Portlandia. So I just have to start with that. It can be a tough watch for a lot of us. But put a bird on it, man, that like – it really hit the nail on the head for the DIY culture of the early aughts, which I felt did somewhat originate in the Pacific Northwest. And as I started to dig into this, I mean, I more than somewhat think that now. I, I really believe that. This was our contribution to the hipster culture of the aughts. And I mentioned a couple episodes ago going to Chicago in this era and someone asking me if I was from Portland because I have that Portland look. So I feel like we really did have our own specific Mm-hmm. thing that was us that we were able to export. And I think that's why Portland became a desirable place. We had all those ye olds making fancy beer. We had all the DIYers making cool, creative stuff. Crafty. Very, very crafty. So the plot of this bit from Portlandia, the put a bird on it, is very simple. It's like birds. The two characters, they go into stores and they put birds on everything, on tote bags, on lamps, <laughs> greeting cards, etc. And instantly everything is more appealing and hip. And, and in fact, I rewatched I rewatched it tonight and I was like, oh my God, like this looks like stuff I remember seeing, you know? It's like yeah. so on point. It's like it's disturbing almost. Um so the actual put a bird on it bit was inspired by Rebe- Rebecca Piercy and her line Queen Bee Creations which she ran for 23 years. And when I think of the aughts in Portland Mm. and what I would see in the best boutiques, it was Queen Bee Creations. Interesting. It was so iconic of that era. And you've definitely seen her bags and accessories. They were massive in the Pacific Northwest, but I would see them in stores in Brooklyn even. Mm -hmm. Um, And they were all made in her Portland studio. And I put some pictures in here for you to see, Kim. You know, it was all of these like leather and vinyl goods with these appliques, right? And, you know, much – we talked a few episodes ago about Built by Wendy being the start of the slow fashion movement here in the U.S. I would say that so was Rebecca Piercy Mm -hmm. and Queen Bean Creations. It's like the indie. I remember seeing this kind of stuff um, online in the early 2000s. At it was the only kind of indie online store, which was called girlshop.com. Yes. Oh my God. Exactly. Yes. 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 I would buy from girlshop.com because it was just like this cool indie underground kind of hipster mm-hmm. and kind of had a craftiness to it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um. You know, this is the kind of stuff you would see in Bust Magazine a lot. Mm-hmm. Totally um, Bust Magazine. Right, right. All of the items were made locally in Portland. They were ethically made of sustainable materials. And each item would have these, like, iconic appliques. It might be mm-hmm. a bird. could be flowers, bicycles, all kinds of nature-inspired things. I believe there was a collection of cupcakes. You could visit <laughs> the store, the main store in Portland, and watch the bags being sewn. 
And I have to say, I was, I, you know, went through the Queen Bee Instagram today and I, you know, I kind of was like, I think these seem fresh now to me. I kind of want one of these wallets. They feel both fresh and nostalgic in a really weird way to me. Like the color I think is really important. And, you know, like Kim was saying that the the scene on the East Coast was a lot more like black focused, like black clothing, black skinny pants, you know. New York rock and roll. Right, right. And I will say that the Portland scene – was a lot more color-driven, a lot more whimsical. There is a direct correlation between what I'm going to talk about and the new girl, you know, mm-hmm. um, and mod cloth and all yeah. of that stuff. So Queen Bee Creations was beloved by Portlanders, and I would say actually in the entire Pacific Northwest. All of the cutest, best shops carried the line, and it was a practically a law that you had to own something from there. I could never afford a bag because they were expensive and I was broke as fuck. But I totally had a white wallet with a bike on it that was eventually uh-huh. stolen from me, unfortunately, but it was very cute. Did and Baxter I'm- steal it? <laughs> no, no. <laughs> someone at a bar did. It was, you know, it was the era oh. of someone stealing all your stuff at a bar. Yeah. Classic yeah. time, right? Um, looking at these photos today, though, I'm filled with such a longing for a replacement. But unfortunately... Piercy ended the line last year to focus on her new self-named line of home goods and clothing. And I know she broke a lot of hearts when she did that. Um, If you lived outside of Portland, you could buy Queen Bee stuff at buyolympia.com as well as boutiques all over the country and girl shop and whatnot. But Buy Olympia was sort of like a mega site of all the best DIY stuff in the Pacific Northwest because this was – massive. Basically, there was just so much of the stuff being made from Portland to Olympia to Seattle. It was just a hotbed for DIY. With all of it embodying this like cute, whimsical Mm -hmm. aesthetic, it felt so Pacific Northwest. And Buy Olympia still exists. And it still carries some other iconic artists and makers of the aughts. I was like looking through it today. Like Nikki McClure, you've totally seen her stuff. She's a paper cut artist. She has children's books, a million greeting cards, all this stuff. Uh, cartoonist uh, Gemma Carell makes all kinds of stickers and pins and comics and whatnot. And Sarah Utter, she made the iconic Reading is Sexy bumper sticker that I had on my 83 Volvo wagon, which was the first car I ever owned at the ripe old age of 26. Um, And this sticker you can still get. I almost like want to buy it just for the nostalgia factor. Um, One of the most amazing things that I noticed as I started to reminisce about the DIY culture of the Pacific Northwest is that despite the brutal misogyny of the hipster Mm -hmm. culture, particularly in the Northwest, I am not going to discount that, women were really running the show when it came to this DIY scene. And you and I kind of talked about this before, how we were like, every woman we know who was a hipster was like hustling, like building a career, building a business, making cool stuff supporting the dude in her life, right? Mm-hmm. Like financially. Exactly. And Portland, I always would joke. I was like, well, the only people in this town with jobs are women and the dudes uh-huh. are in bands, right? Um, but it's not a surprise to me that women were running the show here because most of their art forms were what is traditionally considered women's work, like sewing, knitting, yes. embroidery. And the cool hipster-focused women's magazines of the aughts like Bust and Venus reinforced this growing appreciation of crafting. We haven't talked about those yet, but I'm thinking we need to do a deeper dive in a future episode because there are so – we've talked about Vice 
we skipped all of these other magazines that were like Nylon and yeah. Bust and other ones that were really focused on the female hipster. So I think we need to do those next because they're fascinating. Um, and Bust specifically would talk about these female artists and their craft a lot. Yeah, me too. Me too. There were other artists in the fiber arts that really built their brand and business during this time, and they're still around. So there was Jenny Hart, aka Sublime Stitching, and she sold these very cool embroidery patterns that were like heat transfers that you would just like iron onto something, and then the outline would be there, and you could embroider oh. it. And they were very vintage, tattoo-inspired. She definitely was like doing this out of her home for a long time. Everything came in like wax paper envelopes and stuff. I mean, it's a much bigger – I think a bigger like operation now and she's had some books published and stuff. Jenny actually lives in LA, but her early aughts aesthetic felt so in line with what Portland was at that time. Um, according to Nicholas Arbell, who's the curator of American craft and decorative art of the Renwick gallery at the <laughs> Smithsonian American art museum, he said that she actually, Oh my God, I totally lost his quote, but that basically she was responsible for the rebirth of embroidery in this century that. that no one had really thought about embroidery for a long time. And she brought it back to the forefront. I'm and really excited about looking at all these um, links that you sent. <laughs> it's going to, it's going to take you back. Uh, mm -hmm. You can still buy all kinds of patterns from sublime stitching online. And I saw some that I recognized as being sort of like classic. Uh, you can see one of Hart's pieces at the Smithsonian and her work is owned by celebrities like Maya Rudolph, Tracy Ullman, Richard Simmons, mm. Debbie Reynolds, Carrie Fisher, and the estate of Elizabeth Taylor. So cool. So cool. So cool. And then another person was Debbie Stoller, who was the editor of Bust Magazine. But she was also an avid knitter who turned knitting and crochet into something every DIY hipster had to do, including me. Mm -hmm. In 1999, Stoller started a weekly stitch and bitch meetup in the East Village where she lived. Uh, the concept of knitting, sewing, and gossiping together is nothing new, but it had kind of begun to pick up I don't know, like some momentum and pick up that title Stitch and Bitch in yes. the 80s when it was mentioned in Anne McDonald's book, Social History of American Knitting. So Stoller, she was doing this just because she like, you know, had grown up knitting. It was just something she liked to do. But she started writing about her experiences knitting and her Stitch and Bitch meetups in Bust and readers loved it. This concept picked up momentum with chapters opening in LA, Austin, and Chicago. And then soon... It just blew up from there. And today, even today, 20 years later, there are more than 1,400 registered Stitch and Bitch groups in 289 cities worldwide. And this wow. is just people getting together to, you know, knit, crochet, and hang out. Yeah. Um, she herself, uh, Debbie Stoller, has published so many good knitting and crochet books, including a Stitch and Bitch series, which is all about knitting. It's really amazing patterns really great tutorials on how to do different things. I'm a mega fan. Her first book like changed my life and taught me a lot more knitting skills that I didn't have. And she also did a book uh, called uh, The Happy Hooker and it's about crocheting, which I need to track down because I've been really wanting to take up crochet. Oh, crochet is amazing. I, you know, I took textile art um, when I was in college and that was the the thing that I could do. I could not I could not knit. I just <laughs> didn't like it, but I loved crochet. Yeah, I need to do it. I mean, I love knitting. I feel like I will like crocheting too. And it's like crazy that I don't know how to do that. 
Um, there was even the stitch and bitch thing like went on and grew and grew for a few years there. There were even these international stitch and bitch days that were all sort of coordinated by Stoller and by Bust. Um, I don't know what she's doing now because obviously Bust is defunct as far as I know. And, uh, you know, it's like a pandemic. Things are weird. I know she was doing some like stitch and bitch cruises that you could go on and stuff like that which sounds kind of cool right awesome yeah yeah yeah. and I also just wanted to give one more shout out to Wendy Mullen of Built by Wendy who put together a group of sew you books that I think taught an entire generation of hipster women that they could sew cool and cute clothes like I think all of these women who I just mentioned really said, hey, here are all these crafts that maybe our moms did when we were growing up, but maybe not because I feel like our generation, we our, our moms were busy. Like a mm-hmm. lot of us were home alone. Our moms had jobs. Our moms weren't necessarily doing a bunch of craft stuff on the weekends. Uh, sh- these women were like, hey, guess what? I'm going to show you how to do all these cool things, you know? And I think it inspired a whole generation of like millennial makers. Like yeah. all of these women – Right. We're definitely Gen X, I would say, but they mm-hmm. like shared. I mean, I like, I'm so excited that all these women had a platform in the odds, you know? And and then we also had, I don't know if you were going to mention this, but we also had the craft fairs were huge. Oh my God. I didn't even think of that, but yes, like that was another thing that happened. Renegade that, craft. Renegade and- craft. Yeah, totally. In Portland, we had a thing called Crafty Wonderland, which is still going mm-hmm. strong. I mean, think it really, taught women, primarily women. I mean, I'm not trying to make this like all about women, but like that's what we saw the community at least be in the beginning. Uh, It it gave them an opportunity to like learn craft and turn it into a job. And I still have friends who have been making stuff this whole time, Yeah, you know, and made made a business out of it. I also think it paved the way for like super nice fabric stores that catered to hipsters. And I think – all of the knitting culture created cool yarn stores because when I first started knitting, your options were you could go to like Joanne or Michael's and the yarn was ugly and gross. Mm-hmm. Or in Portland, they were like two yarn stores that were so hippie, like what your hippie <laughs> yeah. mom would go to and like everything yeah. was earth tone and tie dyed. Uh, you know, it changed that mm-hmm. industry and like the kind of yarns that people made. You suddenly saw like new sort of like aspirational brands like Wool and the Gang and yes. other other yarn situations. Um, did you um, did you know that Etsy grew out of Williamsburg? Wow, like the that hip- is not surprising hip- at all. Hipster culture, yeah, it grew out of the DIY scene that was happening there. See, I mean, these are like once like, Etsy is mm-hmm. an enormous enormous company that is a platform for all of these makers all over the world to use. And I think we can thank the hipsters for that, for making craft something that you would could make a business out of. You know, it just didn't exist in that way before. Um, I mean, there's also the, what is it? Eat, pray, love. I mean, yeah. Whatever. It, oh, it, garbage. It, it, it definitely curbs. went a wrong way. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> of course. And I mean, it got out of control, but it, the the kernel of it is still mm-hmm. there. Um, and I also maintain that that like DIY culture of the early aughts hipster really paved the way for Pinterest, mm-hmm. Pinterest weddings, uh, yep. all yep. of the new crafts that people are taking up right now. And yes, of course, all that bad eat, pray, love stuff. <laughs> um, and I just have to say that like I, I was a person who was deeply into this DIY scene, although mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure I never made anything with a bird on it. 
the scene had a really good energy about it. It felt way more anti-corporate than anything else the hipsters were doing. And it wasn't just making things. It was also about music and writing mm-hmm. as well. There was well, a- there's, Well, there's, there's that magazine. Remember that magazine we were talking about? The um, the DIY magazine? Oh, Ready Made. Was that Ready called, Made. Was it called Ready Made? Yeah. I mean, yes, that's yes. that's a great one that came out of it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that can that sort of like combined design with it. So, it, you know, it left out the eat, pray, love genre yes. of crafting. Tasteful. Um, very tasteful. There was also a massive zine scene in Portland at the time. Uh, any, I yes. know we have listeners from Portland yes. here, so they're going to remember Reading Frenzy, which was like the coolest store ever. It was just zines. And lots of tchotchkes made by all of those local Pacific Northwest artists. And for a long time, the floor above Reading Frenzy was the home of the IPRC, which was the Independent Publishing Mm. Resource Center, which was a place for artists to work on and print their zines and comics. It still exists today, but it's in a different part of town. And in terms of music, there was a really specific type of Pacific Northwest like music that really was like the soundtrack to this scene. Um, just tons and tons of house shows. Everyone was in a band. There were labels like K Records that were releasing essentially just the music that we were all listening to constantly. I was thinking mm-hmm. about different K Records shows that I'd gone to, and I was thinking about Mira, who I was obsessed with. I listened to one of her albums today. She was from Olympia. I remember the first time I went to Olympia, I was like, oh my God. All the girls here have armpit hair. This is fucking amazing, you know? And another time I took a road trip to very North Washington out into the San Juan Islands to this big island there called Anacortes. And K Records just had like a free music festival in the park there. And it was just like all these cool DIY bands, people selling the cool stuff that they made. And it was just like – Everything that a festival is not now, <laughs> you know, in the exactly, city. yeah, yeah. Wait, do do you guys have that like trend of the the librarian, like sexy librarian oh, hipster? Yeah, for sure. I, I mean, that was like kind of huge in Portland. Fell in there. Yeah, definitely a part of this for sure. And you have to remember that also in Portland we had Powell's Books, which is like the yes. legendary, enormous used bookstore, um, and that was definitely like a hub for this group of people as well. And if you worked at pals, you were automatically sexy, you know, and plugged in. Yes. <laughs> yes. The nerd, uh, the, the sexy nerd elitism is definitely ripe in. We, I remember there was also, there was a brand called sexy librarians and it was like, yes, I, I remember that. Yeah. I remember that. I remember that. We definitely had boutiques in town that sold that along with that queen bee creation stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, I was definitely, the DIY hipster through and through. Like these were my people. This was my aesthetic. If you saw me around town, I was riding a bike in like a square dance dress and knee socks. And Mm -hmm. I had flowers and ribbons woven into my bike basket. And I was very cute. Like I was adorable, you know? And this culture felt very genuine and positive to me, which is what I needed, you know, Mm -hmm. possibly because it was so female driven. That did not mean that I did not get involved with all kinds of horrible, abusive hipster dudes. But the women that I knew that were in this scene were so incredible and are still doing amazing stuff today. But, you know, a few years later, I was living in Philadelphia, uh, working for Urban Outfitters as a buyer. And after a few years in Philadelphia, 
that like cuteness was just like beaten out of me. Uh, I went through a very abrupt style change at that point. I still have all my clothes from my DIY era here, even with me in this house, but I haven't worn them in a long time. I still think about bringing them back, but suddenly, you know, I'm living in Philadelphia, which was a very lonely and unhappy experience for me for the most part. And my desk was wallpapered with photos of Devendra Banhart. Like people would print them out or cut them out of magazines and pin them to my desk for me. I was was obsessed. I, at that point, wore a lot of feathers and suede and bell bottoms. Mm -hmm. I was extremely psychedelic, I guess. Uh, And that was because another West Coast hipster subset had really had really sucked me in. And it was these like psychedelic babes of the freak folk scene. And this had a much more like LA desert vibe to it, but it still felt like very connected to that DIY culture because the sort of community behind that had that same sort of like, we do it ourselves, we make it ourselves kind of vibe. And it felt very genuine. It really, the success of this scene really set the stage for all of the desert weddings and big hats of the audience yes. and people well, going like out cool boho yes yes this like led to that for sure uh-huh. and like it becoming mainstream it felt very fresh and very foreign and also comforting to me as mm-hmm. i struggled to find a place my place in philadelphia which was could not have been more different you know there was also something so awkward and unconcerned with the idea of coolness about that early freaks folk scene that really resonated with me. It felt so different from that, like, be as cool as possible environment that I worked in at that time. And the hipster scene in Port in Philly, for the most part, was very similar to New York. People were wearing a lot of, like, skinny jeans and American apparel and deep Vs and black and, I mean, you know, and party photos. And people were really into electronic music and stuff. No one in the freak folk scene would have ever collected dunks, for example. You know what I mean? (laughs) Which is something, like, in Portland, no one was collecting dunks either. And I got to Philly and everyone was doing that. And I was like, what? Where? I don't understand. How is this world so different, you know? I think I miss, I think I miss the dunks. Thank God. I don't think I, don't think I was paying attention. There's a lot of dunks going on <laughs> at that time. And it was like shocking to me because the other thing about Portland is that's where Nike's from. And to be fair, Portland has changed a lot over the decades and more and more people have moved to Portland to work for Nike. But in the aughts, if you were a hipster, you would rather die than wear a pair of Nike, much less some dunks, you know? (laughs) So it was shocking to me. And, you know, like the other thing about this like freak folk scene is these people weren't shopping American apparel. They weren't into electronic. It felt very cool and genuine to me, much like that DIY culture in Portland. And I wasn't alone in thinking that, you know, Neil Young, who would have Mm -hmm. been the original freak folk in many ways, he told the New York Times in 2006, quote, For me, the collection of artists involved in this so-called psych folk revival serve as a reminder that in the corporate morass of today's sterile music industry, there are artists unafraid, confident, and talented enough to flourish creatively in a homegrown environment. And thinking about this made me think about a lot about the new sincerity because I these people were very sincere, very earnest, you know, Mm -hmm. and the the core the classic scenester the east coast scenester especially did not think these people were cool you know and even oh. in portland i was thinking about they didn't get it 
They didn't get it. When get I it. first moved to Portland, I remember the guy I was dating, who who sucked, by the way, uh, telling me <laughs> that there were two types of people in Portland. There were hipsters and hippies, and they hated each other. You could had to pick a side and stick with it. And mm-hmm. it's because I think Portland had at one point been just a haven for like the really just grossest relics of the hippie era. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. like there was just like weird stuff going on there all the time. <laughs> like I just like toe rings and you know, you know, like that kind of stuff. And just, I remember toe rings in your Birkenstock. Exactly. I remember this same guy had dated some woman who was a pharmacist. Wait for it. Wait for it. At a store that sold medicinal gems. <laughs> <laughs> There was just like a oh lot of that, God. you know, like it would be like, oh, I'd really love to go to the the community oh. sauna, but like it's a weird swingers hangout. Like there's just oh. like weird. There was some weird hangover effect from the hippie era. I mean, then there were good things that came out of it, too, which was like people being really responsible about nature and composting and eating healthy and stuff like that. So it wasn't like all bad, but there was definitely like you're in one team or the other. And this yeah. freak folk thing kind of said maybe you're a little bit of both, you know? And I thought that that was really, really interesting because the other thing that I would say is that coming from Portland to Philadelphia, everybody thought I was like really crunchy and hippie anyway because I was like really into recycling and like eating healthy food and stuff like that. Like I I came from Madison, Wisconsin, which had a bit bit of a crunch factor also. And in the odds, I'd always be so obsessed with like recycling something. Because it's really important, you know? Yeah. And, and they, they're like, we don't recycle. <laughs> or, you know, I mean, they, yeah, they do. Yeah, people really weird about it. Or they would find out they, like, cooked my own food or something and be like, right. wow, you're so, like, bohemian or whatever. Anyway, so I knew that I wasn't fitting in and, like, what the hipster culture on the East Coast was at that time. And so this freak folk scene felt really good to me. The big names of this scene, and it was massive. I started to go down a rabbit hole where I was like, I don't need to list all of these names. Yeah. But Devendra Banhart, obviously, Joanna Newsome, Grizzly Bear, Espers, Vetiver, Lavender Diamond. Sometimes someone would be in seven of these bands, you know, totally. like every, it was like a community. Yeah. But there were so many other bands. And it felt like there was one year I went to South by because that was my big treat every year is I would go to South by with my best friend, Raina, and literally, Kim, we would get up at dawn every day and see shows all day, all night until like 2 a.m., go to bed for like four hours and do it all again for like a week. Like this was our thing. We were so obsessed with music. And there was one year that we were there, and I think it might have been the last year that I went. It was entirely this like freak folk, every show I saw. It was amazing. The whole thing just felt so earnest, so in line with those values of, like, the new sincerity. And the look style-wise was was a comfortable wheelhouse to me because it was very vintage-y. It was 60s and 70s, frequently over the top, you know, capes on men and women, long hair for all, hats, gunny sacks dresses, turquoise jewelry – Joanna Newsom was actually kind of the link between that cute DIY aesthetic and then the freak folk scene because she kind of was enjoyed by people of both scenes, I think. Like, she would wear these cute vintage dresses that felt very, like, my Portland DIY life, but they became slowly a little bit more prairie-esque. But then, I cannot emphasize this enough, she played a harp, okay? Like, she would literally get up on stage and play a harp. (laughs) 
<laughs> it's like wild, right? Like yeah. that was, and she was r- amazingly talented, right? But like, when else could someone have gotten up on stage and played a harp and sang really weird songs that sort of sounded like they were about fairies or elves or something and been wildly successful? Like, it was I mean, I think right time. now on TikTok. Oh, for sure. Like, for sure. If you were yeah. a Gen who did that, you yeah. would be like an absolute celebrity. Totally. There's a hot tip. There's a Gen Zer listening who does TikTok. Do this. Get your. This is your aesthetic. This is your aesthetic. Yeah, we got it for you. (laughs) Harp core. So, Deventer Manhart obviously was such a mega babe. Probably Mm -hmm. still is. Uh, He had long hair and like a major beard. He was known to wear makeup. He was also known to engage in some cultural appropriation, which. So were the rest of the Freak Folk fans, that whole scene. This and was, all hipsters, really. Yeah, it's true. This was the era of appropriating indigenous culture, sometimes Hindu culture. People would be like, oh, I'm doing this Buddhist thing. Like, it was just – it was sloppy for sure. Since the Freak Folk community was primarily white, just like the rest of the hipster culture, this was obviously very problematic. But, you know, it just seemed like no one realized this for a really long time. Um, we talked about that, how there was just, like, so little, like, social progress over, yeah. like, a period of 20 years. It's kind of wild. Um, they were also, I mean, like, to be honest, this scene was appropriating just about every genre of music from around the world as well. So it was it was sloppy, for sure. Also, at some point, Devendra Banhart was dating Lindsay Lohan. And what? I think he dated Natalie Portman for a while and cut off all his hair too. That was when I was like, I don't know if I'm into him anymore. I'm over it. (laughs) But, uh, you know, all of these songs were about nature and crystals, mysticism, love. Boomer music critics who had already lived through the 60s and thought their version of it was a lot better. They were really disappointed by the lack of political content in their Mm -hmm. eyes, uh, which seemed to be out of alignment with the 60s subculture that these musicians were ostensibly co-opting. Artists, however, would contend that the music was political, but in a much more subtle way, that they didn't need to hit everyone over the head with a political message like you had to in the 60s. Right. Uh, Greg Weeks of Espers told the New York Times, quote, you don't have to make a grand statement. You can just do things in your own little way, put them out there, and if people respond, it's going to be a chain reaction. And I think that's kind of what's happening. You know, I mean, regardless of whether or not the freak folk hipsters really did accomplish anything politically or otherwise, I would say they didn't. Uh, We have to agree that they had a huge influence on mainstream culture as well, from making everyone more interested in the great outdoors. You know, think of how trendy national parks became. Uh, The desert was a trend, is still a trend. Yes. (laughs) Road trips, you know, crystals, you know more like natural, organic living, uh, the the Integratron, just all the vibes. And it also made everyone want to go to like Pappy and Harriet's, go out to Joshua Tree, Yucca Valley. Uh, I think it's responsible, this this movement, the subculture is responsible for festival style going that like boho direction. And I think- yeah, like totally. Oh my god, totally, totally. They may they mainstreamified boho mm-hmm. in a way that's still. I mean, I think it's finally dying off now, 
But you and oh I saw, God. I felt like when you and I it were at forever. Nasty Gal, it was I don't like think it I, ever ended. I feel like it kind of has now to a certain yeah. extent. And maybe that's because all the festivals got canceled and no one can go anywhere. Um, and I think that younger people are into like cottage corn stuff now. Uh, but I think I, people are going to get into um, more Western mm-hmm. styling I as opposed to like boho. It'll be like yeah. some sort of kind of well, Western-y. And it just like, I mean, you and I saw this, how it came on as a trend. And in the beginning, it was primarily driven by like vintage or like very cool high-end designers. Mm-hmm. And then it was like you and I are at Nasty Gout and like our boss is picking this like Horrible mm. faux suede bullshit. Oh my god, I remember that thing. The, with the one with the fringe, fringer. the leather yeah. fringe. Oh, it was so yeah. terrible. So, so terrible. <laughs> and I would see, and I was thinking, like, well, this trend couldn't get grosser. And mm. that was like what, 2015, maybe? Yeah, definitely. Years, four years would go to trade shows and still see that. Just like so gross, like whole stores full of it. And I do remember this time period. Boho style was really picking up. We were buying into it at Urban Outfitters, and that had never really been our aesthetic. And, uh, and Rachel Zoe, that was her aesthetic. Her, for sure, for sure. I like that's why I remember us literally being like, do we need to be paying more attention to Rachel Zoe? Like we would mm-hmm. we talked about that in meetings. And I I feel like we saw like a lot of different businesses kind of come up that were specialized in boho fashion. Many of them have fallen by the wayside at this point, but there were a lot of brands that were doing that. And I just, I know it stemmed from this because you would start to see this kind of stuff even in Nylon Magazine. Yeah, you're right. And, I mean, and I mean, uh, anthropology is just based on boho, right? Well, like I think, I think anthropology is more like based on that like DIY crafty stuff. I free people. Mm-hmm. Is based on the boho. Free people. Yeah, okay. You're yeah. right. Free people. Yeah. I mean, there's a certain boho element to anthropology, but when I was at ModCloth, anthropology was like our biggest competition because our customers who were like like a Peter Pan collar and an applique would buy it from mm. both of us. Like that was their that was the heyday for anthro from a business perspective as well. And you know, that aesthetic has kind of fallen off, right? Yeah. I'm sure it's gonna make a comeback. But. I remember – I feel like I was talking to Anthropology once and they were like, oh, you know, our, our customers, they like – they aspire to be jet setters. <laughs> that was that was what they told me and I was like, oh, okay. That, that makes sense actually. Sure. Like, they're like, yeah, they want to be in Morocco or they want to be in like – Yeah, I don't I, know I, about I don't that because like when we did a bunch of consumer insight – Ibiza. They all wanted to be like <laughs> – they were all teachers and librarians. Yeah. No, of, of course. <laughs> I'm just saying like I – which – those are both amazing jobs, right? And in the aughts, we're probably like the sexiest jobs you could have. But mm-hmm. I, I feel like, you know, right. you know how mm-hmm. brands get delusional about who their customer is. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. But yeah, I mean, I think we can see the recurring theme here is that every hipster culture, subculture that we have talked about in this episode and previous episodes has become a part of the mainstream in one way or another. And some of it has peaked and it's kind of over like that cutesy DIY thing has ended in terms of like a fashion trend for sure. But I'm sure it will come back. I think this like boho thing is on the way out for good, or at least for an extended period of time. Um, hardly ever see people wearing asymmetrical pants anymore. <laughs> I know, exactly. Like, I don't know if that's coming back. An asymmetrical knit something? Yeah, oh my gosh, exactly. That one, I think, was the first to fall. 
You know, yeah. it was that one. Then it was the the cutesy DIY. Then it was now it's the boho. But I mean, we've seen it. Yield still going strong because no one no one cares about them. But <laughs> just dudes. They're just dudes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but I do I do think that um, that is finally. It's had a decades-long legacy at this point, and now it's, like, making way for what Gen Z is going to make their subcultures. Exactly, which is right now around the Y2K. It's Y2K right now. They haven't quite gotten super deep into um, 2000s. You know, they definitely Mm -hmm. are appropriating some things, but Y2K is, like, the big deal for what for for Gen Z. I mean, I love it because I remember Mm -hmm. the first time Y2K came around – uh, I was definitely obsessed with this idea of like future dressing and it was a very short window, right? Because when Y2K actually came, it was over. Mm-hmm. It was so like not a thing. So in 1999, yeah. fashion for like hipsters took this brief futuristic direction uh, and shoes had these like crazy like space soles on them and like your clothes would have a lot of weird pockets Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, a lot of cargo. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. A lot of pastel lip gloss and mm-hmm. oh, like light blue and so light good. pink. So good, yeah. So Fuzzy things, yeah. I get excited when I see people doing that now because it was like of all the trends that I have like lived through in my life, it was the shortest lived. So it feels it feels like I haven't seen enough of it in my life yet, you know, whereas like if, when everybody starts wearing like Peter Pan collars and like App, bird appliques, I'm going to be like, I can't. Like, I got to pick one out. <laughs> right? yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, I guess that concludes our episode tonight. Hey, Amanda, you have to say the word dunks one more time. <laughs> Why? <laughs> so funny. Dunks. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, I shoes in this era and I'd have to go meet with the Nike people <laughs> and see all the fucking dunks while I was there. <laughs> like, it seems like such like a foreign word to you, to your mouth because it's just like so my name, is either- Amanda, my name is Amanda McCarty and I have never even tried on a pair of dunks okay <laughs> exactly me either <laughs> <laughs> it's, like you're, it's like you're an anti-brunch society slash anti Dunks. Yeah, the oh, original member of the anti-dunks mm-hmm. society over here. If anyone else wants to join, we are very mm-hmm. anti-dunks. Okay. Yes. I don't get it. I hate God. I mean, I'm just gonna go ahead and say this. I don't, you know what? Half the world was mad at me this week about vegan leather, so let's just go mm-hmm. harder. You I got it. Hate sneakerhead culture. <laughs> me okay? too. I don't I understand it. I find it boorish. Me too. I find it a waste of time and money. <laughs> so just like pointless consumerism. And yes, it is. I appreciate how people have literally built a fortune over trading fucking dunks and stuff. <laughs> but like I it's just consumerism for the sake of buying shit. It is a culture that perpetuates this idea that you should buy one to save as a collector's item and the other yeah. one to wear. I also just don't think there's anything cool about buying stuff just to have it and sneakers let me it's like tell trophies. you trophies yeah it's gross it's like trophy shoes i did yeah. uh which, I, which women buy we buy trophy shoes we do and i don't like it either you know yeah. uh 
I have a column at the closehorse.world blog called Ask Amanda where people can write in and ask me complicated questions and I'll find the complicated answers. And the inaugural column was about is there any sort of sustainable running shoe out there? Well, there is in fact mm-hmm. not. But nope. what I did get to do was really go into how bad for the environment and for the humans that make fucking dunks, mm. the shoe industry, the sneaker, yeah. specifically the sneaker industry is so bad, so, so bad. And if you're getting some like really sick white dunks, they're like extra bad. I mean, it is just plastic on plastic on plastic. It's very, very toxic. The leathers, especially if it's a white leather, which is what you see a lot in mm-hmm. some dunks, right? Uh is specifically literally killing the people who make it. Like they die oh of cancer God. and other diseases from making leather so that you can buy a box of sneakers to just store in a special like hermetically sealed closet somewhere. I just hate sneakerhead That's culture. That's heartbreaking. Come at me, sneakerheads. All the sneakerheads listening to the department. I don't think I don't think they've made it to the end of this podcast. I'll tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think we're going to have a big backlash. That's good. That's good. But I just like I have had to work in environments where I have had to like pretend that I don't have a problem with it. I worked for a business that did not make dunks actually, but a lot of the previous, a lot of people that worked there came from Nike and you could never say anything bad about sneaker culture ever. And they were still obsessed with it in one way or another. And it was just always like, if I have to bite my tongue much further, I'm going to like bite it off. (laughs) Like I just, and I don't want to go to New York and have to go visit all of the like over the top experiential sneaker stores. I just don't need it, you no, know? Not, not interested. Yeah. So I'm not interested. Uh, and I wish that if we could stop people from collecting sneakers, we would make a huge difference in the environment right there. Interesting. Yeah. Low-hanging fruit, it's called. Yes. Anti-dunk society. The anti-dunk society. You're totally right, Amanda. <laughs> You are totally right. There now needs to be an anti-dunk society. Anti-dunk is- society, sign up. Who who wants it? There goes us ever getting Nike to sponsor this podcast. Uh- <laughs> well, okay. Now that we've talked about that, we've really covered everything. So yeah. we'll be back next week. I don't know what we're going to talk about. So it'll be a surprise to us as well. <laughs> yeah, I feel like we have to decide. I have a feeling it'll probably be about magazines or movies. We had a request for us to talk about probably the most um, trend-setting, influential movies of the 2000s, which I think would be fantastic. Oh my God, I know. You know, earlier, I I think you said Fisher Spooner or something, and I was like yeah. thinking of um, uh, Lost in Translation. And I don't even oh. think there's any Fisher Spooner in that, but like they're connected. That's in my okay. Brain. Anyway. <laughs> All right. Well, <laughs> goodbye, everyone. Thank you. Thank you.